Hello, and welcome back to MetaStation for our very first podcast of Season 5. We are so excited to be back with you guys and to talk about this amazing premiere. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And we are, uh, we're so psyched that the show is back. We're so psyched that it started off so strong. We have a million zillion things we want to talk about. But overall, we're just feeling really hyped up about the upcoming season, and we hope that you guys all are too. Yes, that was a freaking amazing episode. Like, I just... Oh my god, it was so good. I just, this is going to be like the gushiest podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really, it really was as good as everybody said. It really you know? was. Which is, which is not always true with many things in life. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But like, I feel like I'm, I was sort of thinking like, do I have any nits to pick with this episode? And I really don't, you know, like I, no. I have lots of stuff I want to talk about, but I don't, there's nothing mm-hmm. sort of like, well, this was great, but there was this one big blight. Like I'm, I'm. I'm either like enthusiastically into everything that's happened in this episode or I'm like, ooh, that's really intriguing. I can't wait to see more. One of the two. Exactly. Yeah. No, me too. I I feel the same way. I feel like um, the thing that everyone has, you know, people who have been who have seen the episodes, you know, who who got screeners and have been talking about this for a while, you know, that people have been saying and people I think in part of the show have been saying, too, is that like that it feels really intentionally like kind of a return to form, like particularly, Mm -hmm. I think, in terms of structural parallels with like seasons one and two. And I really felt that like the Mm -hmm. to me, I I think this show, in my opinion, is at its best when you have like one big overarching season long, you know, problem or bad guy or whatever. And everyone else's stories split off of that. But the trajectory is really clean, you know, so in season Mm -hmm. two, it's like get our friends out of Matt Weather. And and lots of emotional stories kind of come from that and, you know, and relationships and dynamics and challenges and, and mini catastrophes that they have to resolve before they get to the next thing. So it led to a ton of story, but it was like season one, get the arc to the ground, you know, survive whoever is attacking us. Season two, get everyone out of Matt Weather. And, and then in seasons three and season four, one of the, you know, the criticisms that we've had was sort of, Places where the, st- the story was kind of biting off more than it could chew and you lost that clean line trajectory. And mm-hmm. um, and so what I'm excited about just kind of for season five overall in terms of how it's sort of positioning all of these different groups of people fighting over one piece of land, which really is like a very like clean and simple season conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, I think that this episode was a little sort of microcosm of doing that really beautifully where you have like one kind of overarching story, which is how Clark spent the last six years and everything else, you know, when Eligius comes into it, when Maddie comes into it, when Space Crew comes into it, everything kind of splinters off of that a little bit, but we're following Clark's journey. And I think that it's really incredible that they, in 40 two minutes or whatever that we covered enough ground to feel like by the time we come back to her in the present day that we know the things about her that we need to know yeah you know yeah like i think that's really it's really masterfully put together that first 20 something minutes where it's just her which is a ballsy as fuck storytelling (laughs) move especially on network tv you know on on yeah on like the CW to have the first half of your premiere episode be one character all alone 
you know, like slowly sort of losing hold of every little bit of hope. I mean, like what a, it's a ballsy move is like storytelling. It's like a huge expression of faith in Eliza Taylor's abilities mm-hmm. as an actor, which were, which is like, I mean, she just knocked it out of the park. Like there's no, Oh my God. Yeah. She, she could have carried 42 minutes and I would have watched 42. I mean, like I understand it's 13, it's 13 episodes and they have to get, you know, things moving. But like, you know, I was a little bit disappointed when we jumped to present day with Maddie. Cause I would have watched a whole episode of just Clark and Maddie getting to know each other. I would have watched like, you know, several episodes, an entire season of that, you know? So it's like, it's one of those like nice things where it's like, there was more than enough. Like I didn't need more, you know, to understand that relationship. But like, it's one of those nice things where I'm like, I'm disappointed because what we got was so good that I wanted to keep watching it, you know? Um, And it would have been a treat. It's like, it's like, can I have a little treat where I see more of that? You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I felt too. It's like, it, it leaves you wanting more in the good way. Like not... Not that it wasn't entirely sufficiently fleshed out, but that their chemistry was so good immediately, and um, and this new the new side that it brought out of Clark, um, the fact that it brought in some heart and some levity into this kind of you know the sort of increasingly grim progression as you sort of watch her get closer and closer to giving up, and then she finds Eden, and then she finds Maddie, and it all kind of like flips around and she's sort of like revitalized again. And, and so it just sort of like put that zing back into the story. I mean, I was captivated. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it, the fact that your interest never wavers for a second, even though for so much of it, it's just like one person on screen and, you know, and they, and the radio, like the radio as a device served really nicely to give us some moments where, it like, you know, made plot relevant sense for her to be speaking, but they, mm-hmm. they used it pretty sparingly. Like they didn't overplay the radio device. You know, it wasn't like no. one long soliloquy. So there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of her alone with nobody. And and they kind of just like let that silence breathe mm-hmm. in a way that I thought was really, yeah, it was really impactful. I feel like, um, so we, we should maybe like back up and actually start with the Clark alone yeah. stuff before I get to Maddie. Yeah. <laughs> as exciting as I yeah. am, as exciting as I am to get to Maddie. Um, I thought that like one, one thing that was really, really masterfully done with that opening 27 minutes and, and it has to do, you know, it connects to what you're saying about silence. I think they did, they struck a really great balance between giving us, uh, you know, using the radio as a kind of, narrative device that allowed us to get a kind of like more direct understanding of what Clark is thinking and feeling, you know, like it kind of gave us little, little, little anchors, you know, we could see her experiencing things. And then we got moments where we heard, got to hear her reflecting on herself and, you know, how she, how she's thinking about her past and how she's thinking about her present. And, you know, it kind of gave us these little, like little extra anchors. I think without those kind of moments where she got to sort of vocalize what was happening with her in her sort of mind and heart, uh, it would have been much more difficult. So I think those are important, but I do think mm-hmm. the use of silence was so important because those stretches of silence where it's just her and she's like confronting all these problems that, you know, like there's no one else there to call for help, right? Um, and also the kind of like, I think the radio is a device where 
it's simultaneously like so so it works as a device to to kind of give us a window into Clark's mind. It also works as a device to remind us of over and over again of what she's missing, which is people. That the thing that she can't sort of like cobble together herself is companionship, but that the need for that is sort of still there. The the sort of impulse to speak, to say to someone, to say to say out loud to express your feelings and your experiences is so, you know, it's just so innately human. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. the fact that it was punctuated by silence to kind of like drive home her, the fact that she's alone. And also the fact that she's talking and A, like never gets a response and B is also continually reflecting on, sort of remarking on the fact that she doesn't know if anyone's listening that mm-hmm. she longs for someone to respond, that if she only knew someone could hear her, it would help. That also really, I think, did a lot of work to drive home, you know, to make you as a viewer really feel that like loneliness and isolation, you know, so that when Maddie shows up, like I felt like I felt like physical, a physical sensation of relief when Maddie yes. showed up, even though I knew yes. Maddie was coming. Like when she got there, I was like, oh my God, thank God a person. You know, I had that feeling with Clark where it was just like, a person, any person, someone, someone to be able to yeah. hear you when you when you speak, when you scream, you know, like I think they did like such a good job of kind of like of immersing you as a viewer in the full, the, you know, Clark's full experience um, yeah. that when you got to that moment, you really like with Clark, you had that feeling of like sheer overwhelming just you know, not even, it's like too overwhelming to call it joy. You know, you're just like so relieved mm. to not be alone. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think what's, I totally agree. And I think what's, what was really fascinating to me about the kind of trajectory of that whole arc that, that Clark takes sort of through that aloneness into finding Maddie, what I thought was really interesting about it and what felt like, I think just a really great, exciting and positive sign for the kind of the direction of the season overall is that it could be, you know, it was extremely, parts of it were like very dark and very emotional and very Mm -hmm. painful, but also the trajectory was so dynamic. Like she had little moments of triumph and happiness Mm -hmm. and relief in there when like, when it starts to rain, you know, and when she finds the rover, you know, like there was moments of like little moments of victory and little moments of, you know, she's driving along listening to Maya's iPod and she's like, she's at peace in a weird way, even, even despite all of this. So it's like, it's like you can tell a story about the, like literally like the highest stakes in the entire world. You're the last person alive on the planet and you have to survive without it being grim, dark and, and kind of like, you know, soul crushingly bleak because we got that, like you said, with the, what the radio gave us was, reminding us that like human connection is like a vital part of being human. And I think mm-hmm. something that this show is it's always a piece of survival. Well. You know, you're sort of it's talking about survival. survival. Yeah. Like that's as, that is as necessary for human survival as food and water, you know, and there's like studies now there's like, there's a whole field of psychological yeah. studies about loneliness and about how, like mm-hmm. about the literal physical toll that being lonely takes on your body. Like it actually can kill, you know, like it does things to you. Humans can't, Mm-hmm. literally can't survive without each other, you know? And so I think... exactly, And like this, the, uh, that first opening 27 minutes really kind of like drove that home in such 
a like a subtle and and deeply textured and layered kind of way that even though Clark is alone in this world, like the people that she loves and that she's known remain so vital inside her and in, in that world. And like, they still are kind of the fabric that sort of stitch this world together for her, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's, to me, I think that's the thing that like gives you that hope to hold on to. Like it gives like, like both you, the viewer watching it, you know, not knowing what's going to happen. And Clark, the character, like the fact that she, keeps finding like she's so incredibly resilient and she keeps finding like a new thing to try a new thing to be hopeful about a new thing to kind of like lift her up like just a second and so when we see her like you know walking through the desert at the end when when she's just kind of like everything's over and you're sort of like watching her approaching is she gonna maybe like you know she's thinking about giving up that moment felt really earned because we'd been through this whole kind of journey with her. But I also liked that, like, it wasn't just sort of like a straight, like, plummeting down into the toilet, you know? Like, it wasn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like, it was, you know, it was Clark being Clark about it. So it's like she's going to try every single thing that she possibly try. But I, but I did feel like, you know, I think something that this show has done really well in the past, and I, and I like it less when it forgets about this aspect of its DNA, is that even in the most dire circumstances, the people that matter to you give you the hope that can keep you going through those horrible times, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, like, the, it doesn't stop the bad things from happening, but it's what keeps you resilient and pushing through that stuff. And, you know, and so, so like, the first human contact that she attempts to find is you know like when she kind of, when she pops up out of the the ruins of Becca's lab and she's hoofing it to head to Polis to get you know to hope that she can still get into the bunker the first sort of person from her past that she really crosses paths with a little bit um is Lincoln because the car is yeah. like parked is parked by the rocks and, yes. and you know and so it's like like all of these little kind of like touch points Along the way of like, you know, I thought that was so beautiful because those stones always represented they were kind of like, they were a marker to say, you know, this way to hope this way to a new life, you know, like that's, they were the markers. That's where you went to sort of signal to get to Luna. And, you know, so it's like a link to Lincoln. It's also a link to Luna. I think there's like a kind of Mm -hmm. really touching Irony, but also tribute to who Luna was for a lot of her life, although mm-hmm. not at the end that, you know, if you think about it in that sense, those are Luna's stones, you know. And so in a weird way, Luna saves Clark because it's yeah. those markers that enable Clark to to find the rover. And the rover is the only shelter that she has for most yeah. of this, you know. So she would have probably... You know, she wouldn't have been able to get around. She might not have been able to get to the point where she could find Eden. She would have been mm-hmm. exposed to the elements much more. You know, she wouldn't have been able to get to Arcadia to get the equipment to gather water. You know, like the rover is in a lot mm-hmm. of ways the thing that keeps her alive. And yeah, I mean, I think I think the other irony of the rover, you know, the rover is a connection to Arcadia, but it's also I think they got it out of Mount Weather. You know, so there's this like yeah. funny way where like where these people who wanted to end her, you know, like Mountweather mm-hmm. and Luna, who are people who wound up being her enemies, in a very, like, literal way, kept her alive. 
But I think the stones are also, you know, like, I think Lincoln is all over this episode. Yeah. In a way that's really beautiful. And, like, the stones, which she recognizes, you know, they only knew they were there was because of Lincoln. And for Mm -hmm. Lincoln, they sort of, you know, they definitely were this kind of, like, symbol of a a waypoint, like, you're on the right track kind of point to get to this new place. Also, uh, Clark drawing, you know, like her book of drawings mm-hmm, of people mm-hmm. and of the like the her watching, you know, Elegius and make drawings of the ship. Like she's doing a lot of the things that Lincoln did. Yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I sort of I like I appreciated the kind of like the very deep and subtle ways that you can kind of see like the the number the all the people that Clark has known are all contributed in a little way to keeping her alive. You know, like yeah. Lena, Lincoln, Matt Weather, ironically, um, mm-hmm. the walking stick that she got that used to be Lexa's throne, you know, is another piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another sort of object, another thing that kind of supports her, like literally is kind of like the thing that she leans on. Mm-hmm. Um, Jasper and his goggles. Like, I mean, we can talk about Jasper in the letter, but I think the fact that like, I think it's, imp- it's a really important to me that it's not just, that sort of Jasper is commemorated, um, not just in terms of her seeing the letter and having a moment to remember him, but also that like those goggles are a practical necessity to her. You know, like she's in a world of sandstorms. Like she could not yeah. have walked through the desert again to get to the point where she could find Eden if she didn't have Jasper's goggles. And so again, there's a kind of like beautiful way, and there's a there's a kind of like a, a bittersweet irony there again with Jasper. You know, somebody who died angry at her, who blamed her for so much who chose, who felt like he didn't want to keep enduring the pain of living, you know, like he chose mm-hmm. to die. And yet it's his, his goggles and the fact that Clark keeps them, you know, I think as much out of a kind of like sense of memory, remembering him as out of practicality that helps keep her alive too. So there's like all these yeah. like really concrete ways in which these characters, you know, contribute to Clark's survival. Like even though she's alone, it's kind of actually like, the the like the quintessential Robinson Crusoe narrative, you know, like Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> who gets shipwrecked on an island for uh, twenty eight years, and like the the sort of like myth of Robinson Crusoe is that he was a man. He sort of like builds everything from scratch and he survives on this island. But the truth is, the only reason Robinson Crusoe manages to survive on the island is because he like he has an entire ship's worth of supplies that he's able to take ashore and he's able to mm-hmm. like remember things that he had learned from other people about how to do things. So like Robinson Crusoe, it's like you're alone, but you have to, you rely on the existence of other people in the world to be able to exactly. keep surviving. Yeah. 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 You're physically alone, but you have like all of the things that you've learned and all of the things that other people have given you. And yeah. And I, and I liked the <laughs> sort of like, I, this sounds like, I don't know, facetious, but you know, like a, like a video game, like you pick up things along the way. Yeah. That like, you <laughs> no, know, it literally is. Like, yeah. Give Acquired you goggles. Powers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the goggle, yeah. The goggles and the stick and, and the, and the rover. And, you know, and so, so I, yeah, I liked, I'm with you. I liked both that one thing that we had talked about last time we had Jason on. And that was something that, you know, we had a lot of, you know, thoughts about sort of particularly as regards Jasper, but I think kind of across the board, um, you know, with the show, I think when it goes too fast and it runs the risk of deaths not having stakes and, yeah. you know, or or moments of like reacting to death sort of feeling like rushed through and like wanting there to be a moment. But that was sort of about Jasper that was specific to Clark, like giving Clark that mm-hmm. moment. And, um, and, and so I, what I liked about this episode was because everything was slowed down, because it was mm-hmm. just 
Clark just trudging through, you know, um, that it gave us a lot of space to sort of sit with what those things mean, you know, and, and so the journey, so she starts with Luna and Lincoln help her find the rover. And then she, she does what, you know, what we all would have expected that she would do, which is that she like goes straight for where everybody else is. Um, mm-hmm. And then we get that just heartbreaking oh, scene where she's trying to like pull like the tiny little Eliza Taylor trying to pull like building wreckage chunks of boulders off of each other so she can like try to like pound on the door and like scream for her mom and I was like oh my god oh my god I I like I cried at that but that just that moment of you know like of screaming mom I'm here I'm here I'm here like oh god I just this sort of like primal sense of like yeah I need to get to my mommy like oh my god I need to get to my mom (laughs) yeah well and and especially knowing I think this is this is how well it was executed was even though I absolutely knew that you know like they were gonna pop up and be like oh hey Clark and like like, let her in (laughs) and she could be like you know what never mind I'm gonna go back on walkabout I just wanted to see if you were there yeah yeah Like even though I totally knew there was a there was a part of me that was like open the door open the door open the door <laughs> like, even though I knew and and I you know and it's also like it's you know of course it's additionally heartbreaking because we don't you know we don't know what's happening down below yet and we haven't we haven't met this new post prime fire version of Abby but we know that we're we're seeing you know kind of Clark's half of this really heartbreaking separation and knowing that like below the surface inside that bunker, the other half of it is just as Abby's just as devastated. Yeah. And, you know, and so it was just, so that sort of, yeah, that, that like pounding and like crying out to be heard and, um, and how that's, I think the first moment that we really see like the first big blow because, you know, when she, Mm. when she first climbs out and she's like, she's like, you got this. Like, she's so sure. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Like, like all she's got to do is get to Polis, you know, and like, she's smart and she's resourceful and she finds the rover and, and all she's got to do is just get, you know, to a place that she's been a million times and, and then it's over and then it'll be fine. And everyone's down there in the bunker and they would have saved a spot for her. And there's, you know, food and water Mm -hmm. and a farm and her mom and everything's fine, you know? And, and so watching how long it takes her to realize, you know, like how long she keeps trying, you know, she's got one like power bar left and she's like breaking it up into like little tiny chunks. That was also heartbreaking. I was just like, Oh my God. Yeah. You're just like this poor lamb. And, the way that it ends is everything collapses and it's like worse off even than it was before. Like all that hard work, however many days she was there, (laughs) you know, starving herself, breaking her back, hauling boulders. And then within like minutes, it was like crumbled over, like, you know, and, and that sort of juxtaposed with the line she has when she's in Arcadia about like, you know, it's like we were never there. Like just that that hopelessness of like working and working and working and that, you know, like pain and physical toil and labor and that sense of desperation. And then that moment where she watches the whole thing kind of crumble and fall apart. And something that Brittany said that that I just thought was like so beautiful and devastating was, you know, noticing that like the sticks on Lex's throne were like the last thing holding the tower together. Yeah. They and were, pulls they were load bearing sticks. <laughs> they were load bearing sticks. Yeah. But it's <laughs> but like, but like the kind of the, 
symbolism of like, like not just like Lexa, the person, but like that polis, like that world is definitively gone. It's over. And the crumbling of the tower. And, you know, she takes, she has like, she saves one piece of it. You know, she takes the one Mm -hmm. stick. Um, But like, I think just the fact that, the fact that it's that tower that the bunker is underneath and it's that tower that is now like crumbled and shattered and lying in rubble and and she's kind of, you know, picking her way through like the wreckage of it. I think it's another nice little way of kind of underlining for us that like everything, you know, all all the different ways in which the whole past has been wiped out and like what that means emotionally, you know, in like the sort of big scale and the and the smaller scale, which that was really which I liked. I also think like there's interesting if we can jump over, I want to jump over to like one aspect of Maddie for a second. Cause I think there's a kind of yeah. mm-hmm. a symbolic crossover here. That's really interesting to me is that, you know, you know, I completely agree with that, all that stuff that the collapse of this tower with the, and the sort of total dissolution of what had been a monument to the commanders, like literally a monument. Like this is, yeah. this was like, not just the capital of, the kind of commander's sort of empire, but also like the symbol of their power, literally, or the flame mm. on top, like that building, that was like an edifice mm-hmm. that sort of like, and it was the tallest building. It kind of like physically embodied all the things that the sort of commander myth and cult stood for, I think, both in mm-hmm. grounder culture, but then also in the show. And I think one thing that I'm really, really interested in is, uh, you know, that little bit of uh, sort of hints of backstory that we get about Maddie, which is what I'm, mm-hmm. I was so proud of us because this is something that we, you and I and Selena talked about in our trailer um, yeah. uh, speculation podcast, that Maddie, you know, the reason she survived is not just because she was a nightblood, but the reason that she was even in that village to survive as a nightblood is because she was hiding from flame pe- flamekeeper scouts. And she had spent mm-hmm. her whole life, I think, like, you know, sort of hints that we get are that, you know, she's this little girl that she she had like she lived under the floor you know she hid under the floor when when the scouts came so there's that that sort of like all these like lines these ways where she sort of identifies with Octavia that she was taught that you know flame keepers are these enemy people that you know if they come if they see her she has to fight and she has to kill them to get away and i think what that points towards is and that i'm really excited about really interested in i think you know if you combine that with the way that you know, we kind of get this this sort of symbolic moment of the Polis Tower collapsing. All these sort of moments of showing, like, every bit of the kind of, like, mythologies of power and of civilization and of whatever. These are all, cr- you know, crushed. Arcadia is blown to smithereens. Like, that was the last vestige of the Ark society. Like, totally blown up. So, like, that's, I think, going to be turned upside down in the bunker. Um, all right, you know, Polis is in, is totally blown to bits. And then also, I think, you know, if you combine that with the way that, and this is something that, um, that I think Selena talked about when she, during our trailer podcast, she also talked about in her, um, in her review of this episode. And I completely agree, which is that one thing, one thing I think it seems like this season is doing is that, it's sort of interrogating the the idea of of kind of people as myths, mm-hmm. interrogating yeah. basically like this is a season I feel like where they're kind of like all the things, all your sacred cows, everything that you held up, everything that anybody held up as being a kind of like 
larger than life, some kind of myth, some kind of, you know, myth about what's good or what's bad or what's great or what's, you know, all these things are up to be questioned and to be flipped around Mm -hmm. and to be re-examined from a different angle. And so I think another thing that that tower crumbling is symbolic of is not just that, you know, like commanders are gone, the time of the commanders is over, that civilization is gone, but also that we're going to be looking at that kind of mythology of the commander from a different angle. And Maddie gives us that. That gives us a peek into, you know, we saw the commanders mm-hmm. from the point of view of Luxa and the Flame Keepers, from the point of view of like, here's what their sort of ideal, you know, their ideology or their ideals were, what they what they were meant to symbolize or to do. But they were kind of getting a different look at the lived experience of... Mm-hmm what that meant for ordinary people and what, you know, and like, and I like that they're acknowledging that like what that meant for ordinary people on the ground was literally having people show up in your village and stealing your children away Mm -hmm. from you to force them to murder each other for power, you know, like, and sort of like really actually giving some sort of stakes, you know, when Clark says like, I think like the, the setup that we get from Clark where she says like everybody, you know, I had my reasons every time I kill, but like the other side had their perspective too, you know, like, they were they were trying to kill me and I was trying to kill them and I understand that like so now we're seeing the other side of okay like what what is the story in which the commanders and the flame keepers are villains and I think we're getting like a glimpse of what that looks like. Well, and I think that I agree and I and I like that you know using using Maddie as the device for that where we you know we're we're sort of already learning just in the little bit of her that that we got that um, Maddie's sort of mythologizing of of these various different characters becomes a big part of both of, of, of her, I'm assuming like of her arc over the season and also of kind of shifting dynamics between those characters and Clark, you know, like Maddie sort of seeing them as fairy tale characters. And so there's something really primal and um, sort of spooky and wonderful in this, you know, like the way that Maddie's first reaction kind of plays into all of these like classic fairy tale archetypes of like the child snatcher, you know? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. Of the like like the boogeyman or the, you know, like in you know, in European folklore, the like creepy people who wander through the village at night or, you know, or you go out at midnight in midsummer and the fairies will snatch you. You know, like mm-hmm. like this sort of like lore of, you know, of, of people who take children for their own kind of sinister, supernatural, nefarious purposes is like you know, like an Ur fairy tale, you know, like it's, it's goes all the way back to the source. And, um, and so I like that that's, you know, like our first look at Maddie is her, you know, as from her point of view, as the child in that story, like as a mm-hmm. child in a fairy tale about, you know, people who come to snatch children at night. And, mm-hmm. um, and like you said, like, and it subverts it because like, we know that Clark is, you know, Clark is Clark and that Maddie literally could not be safer with anybody else in the entire world. Yeah. And we know that, we know that like that, that Gaia is a true believer in that faith and that she believed that she was doing the right thing. You know, we, we know Mm -hmm. that Lexa believed that she was doing the right thing, but you know, we're kind of getting the other side of it, which is like, if you're a five-year-old, you know, Mm -hmm. and like these people are the boogeymen who like your parents say, if they catch you, they will take you yeah. away and they'll, you know, and the, and you'll be like murdered basically. And like, mm-hmm. and that is the truth. That is in fact right. what would, ha- you know, like literally. Yeah. Antari would have killed Maddie if they had found her. Like she'd be dead. You know, she, 
She'd be decapitated along with Aiden, you know? And, like, before yeah, that, exactly. she would have been trained. Like, And even if even if, entire, even if none of this had happened and things sort of progress as they normally progress, best case scenario, she would have, you know, killed a bunch of other children to become the next commander. You know what I mean? Like, if she hadn't been killed herself. Like, that's, that's, so, so, yeah. So, so we're kind of getting, like, you, I like that sort of, that analogy. Like, we're, we're seeing the fairy tale. You know, this is like, like the flip. So we're seeing it from, like, Hansel and Gretel's point of view or whatever, rather than. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so I like, and I think because we know, I mean, and, and even, even as far back as, like, when we got the sizzle reel, you know, and it was Maddie kind of, like, fairy tale-ifying this yeah. Clark coming to Earth. You know, so, we, so we've known for a while now that, like, Maddie's child's perspective on all these people and sort of turning them into stories is a big part of her journey. But I, I was... I like that that was the first thing that we saw, you know, and mm-hmm. I, and I think in, yeah. you know, in paralleling it with a sort of like watching the crumbling of, of Polis, I do think it's an interesting, like, you know, like you said, like the edifices and the structure and the hierarchy of, of this world are gone, but like the stories remain, like mm-hmm. the lore remains and it's, it's just not tethered to anything real it sort of just exists as kind of free-floating myth now like there are mm-hmm. you know so I, I so i think that just in terms of like when a civilization ends and all we have left are the stories and the longer it's gone or the more sort of distant we are the more those stories kind of take on their own life that is less and less related to you know, the actuality of what happened, of which grounder culture itself is a great example, you know? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, totally. We have, no, we have no idea how it, you know, how it morphed from Becca's pure, clean, altruistic science into into the version of grounder culture that we met, except that at some point along the way, you know, Bill Cadigan thrust his nose in it, but... <laughs> Um, Bill Cadigan you know, so sullied it. <laughs> <laughs> Ruined it for everybody. <laughs> Ruined it for everybody. Um, but uh, but yeah. So so I think yeah yeah I, I like you know Maddie is sort of like a living, breathing, like the last sort of remnant of this of this power structure. Like right, like the last real night blood juxtaposed with, and her kind of coming in at the end juxtaposed with the crumbling of, of what we know of Polis of what we know of, like, you know, like if we didn't, if we didn't know Maddie was coming, like if we didn't know there was going to be a kid, we didn't know she was going to be a night blood. Like we're, we're in that moment with Clark looking at the ruins of Polis, like everything of this world is gone. And all she can do is hope to God that, somebody who isn't her can figure out a way to clear all of these rocks away and open this bunker door because at a certain point she's kind of like i i can't do it you know i i could sit here for you know months and haul rocks around and i couldn't open the door and so so everything that is left of polis of the grounder civilization of that whole world you know as far as she or we know they're all you know trapped underneath those rocks and when they come back out from there, they're going to have to build something kind of completely new from scratch, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that, and and how how those stories of sort of the world that was will or won't play into that, I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the next place that she goes, which I have many heartbreaking feelings about, is when she goes to Arcadia. Oh, yeah. Which was just... Seeing the wreckage of Arcadia, actually, like, that was really chilling to me. Yeah, the like dented, broken sign, and and the whole bit place kind of like wiped out, and and that's been our one our one consistent sort of 
touchstone locations since season two, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I mean, they, they went back to the dropship for a moment. I really, if she had gone back, if she had found the dropship, I would have, like, lost it. I was so sure she was going to. <laughs> I know. I just felt like she's going to, like, end up there on her journey. But maybe it's been completely wiped out, which is even sadder. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. And they did go back there, you know, a couple times. Yeah. You know, but, like, since season two, that has been the one location that has always been there, you know? So to see, it feels a little bit like, you know, like, the closest thing you can think of to a home base on the show, even as a viewer, was Arcadia. And so to see it just like totally in rubble was like, I was I was surprised at how much that like it was it sort of affected me. But I think also like part of that was because I think it was that, you know, that it was that for Clark as well. You know, like this is a place Mm -hmm. that like that had been although funnily enough, you know, like she lived there the least. But it was also the arc. But it was also the arc. Yeah. I mean, like it was built out of out of the thing out of the place that she had lived her whole life before that. And yeah, you know, and it was like familiar and, you know, and just like filled with all these, you know, again, like sort of like memories of like her childhood too you know like Mm -hmm. this was the physical thing that connected life on earth to what had been life in the sky Mm -hmm. and now it's like totally smashed which again like you know sort of symbolically works really well so i guess we can talk about the jasper moment now in a little bit more depth i'm really 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 grateful that they took a moment not just to kind of like brush by not for her to just sort of like find the goggles, you know, and move on or that that we actually got to linger with that, you know, that she opened the box yeah. that we got to see her sort of pull out each of these little objects the you know, Maya's iPod, which is a kind of like, you know, it's a link to Jasper and it's a link back to Maya, you know, it's this kind of like chain of association. And that we got to linger for a few minutes, you know, watching, watching it really hit Clark, you know, I think. And, and mm-hmm. the fact that that, in a way, that's kind of like the callback to the dropship in that first, because like Jasper was like one of her first friends, you know, like it really sort of mm-hmm. brought back the fact that, that it's only been about a year. And, you know, like he was one of, he was the first person on the ground that she saved, you know, like mm-hmm. he was one of her first friends. And the, one of the first things that she did, you know, in that camp was save Jasper's life. And he was the first person that she, you know, really like, that was the first thing that she like butted heads with Bella me over you know was like mm-hmm. we're gonna fucking save this kid you know yeah and i really appreciated that we got that moment for clark in particular to mourn jasper and also for us like as an audience kind of through that to mourn jasper but i also yeah. really appreciated the way that that you know because like i've talked about a few times before like the thing that was really like that really hurt last season with jasper's story for me was the feeling that his story ended with suicide you know it was sort of like the story was about mm-hmm. how he wound up killing himself and then after that it was kind of over and it was just like you know it's important to me to kind of honor the fact that a person the story of a person who committed suicide doesn't end with their death you know like there's a whole story mm-hmm. about what happens to the people who love them and how they live on and what that sort of loss means to those people, you know, like what that suicide is something that is about more than just one person, you know. Um, And so I really appreciated that we got to have that moment to sort of linger and see and really kind of like soak in like that Jasper being gone, you know, Jasper having lived meant so much, whatever, whatever happened to him in the end, his, his having lived still mattered, that the way that he you know, the fact that he's gone and the and the way that he chose to go, if you want to think of it as a choice, whatever, um, also still matters, has impact, you know, and the fact that that he obviously lingered in Clark's mind, you know, because like she she does eventually almost, you know, kind of give up. And I think there's something also important in the fact that like suicide contagion is a fact, because the thing is that when someone else commits suicide, it can make someone who's 
you know, in a really bad place, it, it kind of makes it feel like in some ways it can, you can have a moment of like, oh, that's a, that's a real alternative. Like that's a real thing that one could decide to do. You know, it sort of like gets in your mind as a, it gets in your mind as a possibility. And so I think that there's, there's a kind of through line too, where, you know, on the one hand, there's a kind of, there's a really beautiful sense in which like, I love that Jasper still mattered. And I love that Jasper's like, like I said before about the goggles that, you know, there's this kind of like, physical connection to him that keeps helps keep Clark alive. I think that's really beautiful. But I also think it's important not, you know, to kind of keep the darker side too, which is that the memory of Jasper and and, the, and his choice, you know, that it wasn't worth pushing on through so much pain. And Clark saying maybe he was right. Mm-hmm. Like the act, that also matters and it changes people. Losing someone to suicide really changes things in a way that losing someone to a different cause of death doesn't. And so I really appreciated that we kind of like got to spend a little bit of time with that. You know, I mean, I really felt like I got some closure that I, that I wasn't sure that I would ever get. And I'm very grateful for that. I, I totally agree. I, I, I know that we knew that some kind of a moment of related to Jasper was coming because we talked Mm -hmm. about it when Jason was on the podcast last, but I, I was, yeah, I don't know that I was expecting it to be, for him to be so present. That big or lingering, you know, like I, I. Yeah, I was like, oh, she'll, she'll find the letter and she'll like take a beat with it. Or maybe we'll see her carve his name into her gun belt or some, something. But the fact that that's the thing, that's the point past which she mm-hmm. can't hold yep. back from falling apart. You know, like that she's been like soldiering on and soldiering on, even in Polis, even like when she's, you know, screaming for her mom, she just keeps getting up and trying and getting up and trying mm-hmm. because she's Clark. Yeah, she tries yes. so hard, you know, and 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 the moment where we finally see her crumble is, you know, in the back of the river with Jasper's stuff and she sees that letter. And that's where she just loses it. And and what I loved about that moment was, you know, not just that it's, you know, a completely emotionally comprehensible reaction from, you know, somebody who has been just like pushed to the brink for, you know, two months now, but also that like, it's the delayed reaction that she didn't get to have yeah. when this happened, because when it happened, it was like they were in crisis. She had, she, she didn't not feel anything, but she didn't have, like, she didn't have time to mm-hmm. like sit there in the back of the rover and cry. And I think one of the things about this sort of the slowed pace of it and the focus on just Clark and and Clark's interior life and Clark's journey of survival is that like there's space finally for like not just for us the audience but for like for her as a person there's space to like think things and feel things and just kind of like mm-hmm. exist for a second you know that she's never had before because it has always been going from like life or death crisis to crisis to crisis and so so like Lincoln and Jasper I think are the two like the two big deaths where. There wasn't there wasn't a single moment for Clark to like mm-hmm. sit down yeah. and feel something over it, you know. And um, so so it was really meaningful. I think not just that you know not just that he was so present, and not just like you said, like I I loved that it was through concrete physical things that moved the story forward and like helped her survive and you know and tied it in with like with the iPod, you know, which sort of would like became the way you know in seasons two through four, Mm -hmm. like the way the show used music so often had to do with like every song that they play is a little piece of Maya's personality. And you know, this just occurred to me too. There's something I I had always been thinking of Maya's iPod as something that was Jasper's, but like Maya was listening to the iPod when Clark busted out of her room in Mount Weather in season two. And Maya, Maya's the one who saved. Maya's the reason that those, all those kids, the 48, no, 
How many were in Mount Weather? 48? 48. The 48 survived Mount 48, Weather. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like, she's the reason that that they were able to get them out. She's the one who helped Clark, you know, who helped save Clark. So, like, I hadn't even thought until this moment that, like, Clark has a sort of personal relation. Like, that, that iPod sort of represents another person, Maya, who is the reason that she's still here yeah. today. And that the music and that, like, Maya's music, like, the songs that Maya loved become like another little thing that helps keep Clark from going insane. We might be jumping ahead a little bit because I guess most of this has to do with the um, the village, but maybe we can come back to this because I think there's something really, really important happening in this episode that has to do with art and beauty mm-hmm. and basically like sort of human creativity as a piece of survival because like, because that music is so important, you know, like the, the object is partly connection to yeah. people. So like part of it, part of it has to do with the fact that this, the sort of like absolute sort of like literal central necessity of human connection for human survival, right? Like Clark, Clark survives because she she has all right. these connections. But I think there's something also about the fact that, you know, that it's an iPod that still works, that it's music, you know, that that part of what keeps Clark going is being able to listen to these songs, these expressions of human creativity, of human emotion. They don't have any, you know, like... Like music doesn't have any quote unquote utility, you know, art doesn't have utility. Art doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. right? In, in the kind of literal, right. like, you can't eat it. <laughs> you know, like, it doesn't make it rain, right? Like, right. it doesn't, <laughs> like, she's not going to not die of thirst because right. she has an iPod. But on the other hand, right. it is sort of vital to the spirit in this, like, really important way where sort of like, you know, the the kind of the way that the music kind of like, like having a soundtrack to be driving across that landscape. You know, there's a sense that fills a space that kind of fulfills a sort of a function in her ability to keep going emotionally and spiritually and to kind of keep that like momentum and hope alive. Like there's something really vital to it, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something really important about art in this episode, about creativity. Yeah, I and I think let's dive into that because I, I think that you're right. I think the iPod is the first first piece of that that we get. And then I think that, you know, the the second piece of it that we really, that I, I think really hits us, or at least for me, hit powerfully, is like the difference between shallow valleys, like physical yes. space, and the other grounder places that we've seen people live. Like, the like it's so colorful, and it's so, and you know, full of flowers, and it's like... Like it's been, I mean, we've been looking at pictures of, you know, like behind the scenes pictures since they started filming and, and, you know, everything has been like, you know, so beautiful and so colorful and so detailed. But like one of the things that I really liked about, about that just sort of as a location and as the place where we see Clark at peace and happy, you know, it's another little sort of piece of this kind of continually unfolding look at how different all of the grounder clans were and how each of them had their own really distinctive kind of place-based personalities, but it feels like the picture you get of who these people were and how they lived, you know, the fact that they, like, the fact that they had a Nightblood kid and they hid her, so they're not part of the sort of, they're not, you know, they're not mm-hmm. gunning for power like Asgard. Like, ooh, pick my <laughs> Like, Nightblood. they kept Antari back not to, like, save her from, you know, being in the Conclave, but because they wanted to keep control over their own entry into the Conclave. It was a power move, not a not a sort of kindness move. 
move. Yeah, not like Antari's parents being like, don't take our baby. Because Naya did take their baby. She just kept her for herself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I so I think that that you know that the like you like you mentioned before the little sort of the fact that it must have taken like the complicity of an entire mm-hmm. village to hide a nightblood child tells us something really important about how this entire clan how like all of Shallow Valley kind of felt about about Polis about the commander about the flame keepers about that entire kind of hierarchical structure and so you take that and then you look at the fact that everything has like silk ribbons tied to every tree and bowers covered in flowering vines and everything is colorful and everything is painted and they're wearing colorful clothing and it gives you this picture of these people who were like peaceful and creative and that the life there was probably really happy yeah. and and so it feels like the fact that that's where Clark makes her home feels like it feels like a healing place. I think there's a few things going on with that village because I think it's important that because here's the thing, finding that green, you know, the green place to borrow a Fury Road reference. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so many moments in there here where I was just like, oh man, that's like such an homage to Fury, like the the sort of lightning dust storm coming towards her. I was like, here we go. <laughs> um, but I think so. So here's, here's the thing that's important to me. Well, one of the things, if it was just a patch of green, if it was just a place where plant and animal life and water managed to not be incinerated, Clark could have survived, right? If there are things, if there are things growing mm-hmm. um, that can be eaten by other things, she has food. She has food. She has water. She has like the sort of the sort of right. basics of survival, and, you know. And, and there's like material for shelter. So in terms of sort of like food, water, shelter as the kind of right. like physical necessities for, for survival, all of those things would have been there, where you know whether that village was there or not. What strikes me as sort of interestingly really important about the presence of that village. What what the village represents is some vestige of basically like human life having existed, especially in contrast to what she said. You know, it's like when she said, it's like we were never here. Maybe we shouldn't have been, you know, and she's sitting in the wreckage of Arcadia yeah. and looking around. And she thinks she's the only human left on earth. And she's thinking, this is what the, this planet looks like if there were, if, if human beings had never existed, if we were wiped off the earth. And what the village is a sign of human existence. Like this is a place where human beings lived. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing that I, that I think a lot about because it's kind of like touches on, um, you know, it's one of my academic interests. It's something that sort of is adjacent to what I've done most of my research on. And it's something I think that I, you know, so I'm really interested in and I'm, it's something I'll probably pursue for my, for future projects. But one thing I'm really interested in is sort of questions about like de- the definitions of humanity. Like how do we, how do we defi- define what it means to be human? Um, and, and it turns out to be really difficult, you know, because like all these things we sort of are like, well, this is human, that's human. It's like, so it's hard to draw those lines hard and fast when there are so many things that like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, other 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 living creatures at least have the rudiments of like for instance language um you know it seems right, right. to be mm-hmm. uniquely human but on the other hand you know animals like dolphins have means of communication that at least approach language you know organized language all sorts of things like that but one thing that is kind of uniquely human is deliberate creative creation of art like we're not the only animals who make tools there are plenty of animals that make tools and use them. Right. And, in, you know, we're not the only animal that builds shelters, but we're the only animals, as far as we know, that that make paint, you know, that, that like, make sculptures. 
you know, so you walk into this space and Clark looks around and the first thing she does, you know, it's not like the first thing she sees is a house she can live in or, um, or, you know, a pile of food supplies or whatever. The first thing she lives, she sees are all these just like beautiful spaces that were created by people. It seems like just for the purpose of being beautiful. And maybe, you know, like the sign of humanity yeah. in that village is I think that creativity, that sense of beauty and that sense of like there being a motivation to create spaces to sort of that are beautiful, that are, that that carry meaning that isn't sort of reducible to like this is the shelter mm-hmm. I need, you know, from the elements. Yeah, like it's it just exists to make people happy looking at it. And I think there's also something significant in the fact that you know, the main building that she's living in is a church. It was a church. And I think there's one shot where actually when, interestingly, when she's burning the bodies, the very, like on the le- on the right hand side of the screen, there's this is uh, uh, included in the shot is the cross that's on top of the church. Oh, I, I missed that. I think there's that. something also significant there to the fact that she's living in a church, not in any kind of like directly sort of like, let's look for the Jesus mm-hmm. parallels way. Although, you know, like she's resurrected from the yeah. dead. There's plenty of Jesus shit. And she gets baptized. But even setting that aside, the kind of like direct Christian, whatever, um, I think that's another thing about like a sort of question about like as Clark's and especially as she's entering this village and she's reflecting about survival and she's as she's walking through the valley, she's thinking, you know, like animals don't don't feel bad. They just do what they have to do. You know, they don't question what it means that they they've killed something or someone. They just do it because they have to survive, you know, and she's thinking like, well, you know, everybody that I've ever killed. I had my reasons, but they had their reasons for wanting to kill me. And maybe, and what would she say? Like, I used to think that there was more to life than survival. And now I'm not so sure. And then she walks into this space where you see like this creation, like the thing that is so refreshing and so like reviving about it is not, you know, not just like, oh my God, here's a place where she's not going to die of starvation or thirst, but also that it's like spiritually rejuvenating. I think the fact that she lives in a church, yes. I feel like there's all these kind of, you know, signals in the imagery and in the subtext that Clark's saying, I'm not sure that there's anything more to, you know, it's life than survival, that that is that is a belief that is where Clark is starting this season. And it's not where she's going to end, you know, and that at least part of Clark's arc yeah. is going to be yes. rediscovering and redefining what it is that life is about for her. That isn't just survival, but maybe that's a little bit more, you know, when she said that originally... I think I don't think she had a clear sense of what the other thing would be. I think maybe this is a season that's about her right. figuring that out. But I think, you know, like living in a church to me, you know, of all the choices they could have made, she could be living in a house, right? So the fact that she's living in a church to me, it feels like there's something, you know, and all this art and, and her drawing, you know, like her creating and the way, like the thing that, and and, yeah. and the turning point for her relationship with Maddie, the thing that, that, that brings Maddie, you know, that, that sort of is the first step in really forging that bond between them as human beings um, mm-hmm. is her drawing a picture, is art, literally is art, is, is Clark, Clark expressing herself yep. as an artist, as doing something that is sheerly the expression of her creativity, of her saying to this little girl, like, here's how I see you. As fierce, you know, but beautiful. Mm-hmm. Art is an expression of sort of like, you know, and, and to combine with the kind of like the radio and the importance of like, the kind of like vital importance of being able to express your, you know, yourself creativity, creatively and sort of appreciate others. And then the sort of living in the church as a sense, there's like that on some level, spiritual life, whether that spirituality is religious, you know, 
or whether it's something that's just that's more um mm-hmm. more secular or whatever there's a sense like i i just feel like the kind of like thrust of all of this is like there is more to life than just physical survival and that's something that's going yeah. to to maybe be a kind of um thread i yeah i think so too and i think you know i think the thing with the drawing with maddie i think one other piece of that that's really important is it's like it isn't just that you know it's i mean like one facet of it is that is that it, she gives maddie sort of like an, yeah. a new way to see mm-hmm. herself where it's sort of like like i'm you know like this is what you look through my eyes but but i think another piece of it is like art is also a way that human beings connect with each other that's sort of inherently yes. healing instead of violent you know like like for maddie the word create is in creative like creativity right, is about exactly. creating not destroying yeah yeah and and so it's a way like it's a it's the thing that clark does that shows maddie mm-hmm. this is who clark is you know like it's it's the first thing that she, like it's it's first of all it's the first genuinely sort of unexpected thing that mm-hmm. Maddie sees Clark do. You know, everything else is sort of some variation of like <laughs> chasing each other. You know, and um, so it's the you know it's the first thing that she does that really like forces Maddie to have to acknowledge that this is this person is not what she thought she was. But but I wonder if because of the little bit that we've seen of Shallow Valley, like if the people who lived there mm. were artists or were creative mm-hmm. people in their own way, in some ways it's like, it's like Clark saying, without knowing it, Clark is saying like, I'm I'm like the mm-hmm. people that you trusted. Like I'm, you know, like a way to sort of link herself to the people that Maddie grew up around, that she knew, that she loved, that she lost, that she probably has been terrified and and panicked that, you know, she's the only person. And then, you know, maybe she doesn't know enough about, at that point in her life, about how Nightblood works. You know, like, people who are not scientists don't know that Nightblood makes you mm-hmm. radiation immune. Like, that would not, that's mm-hmm. like, it's like yeah. it's a piece of the grounder lore of it. That's like right. a thing that Abby and Jackson discovered. So, so neither Maddie nor anyone in her village would know why she's, like, the one person who lived when everyone, like, when she had to watch everyone else that she, that she knows die, which is uh, horrifically traumatic. But I think that, that Clark revealing herself to be a person who sits by the water and draws pictures, I think is a way, and and I don't think she's doing it consciously. She's doing it because like she's Clark and that's what she wants to do because she can, because she like has time to, you know, dig back to that part of like, it's important for her too, like to be a person who's drawing again and making art again. But I think it's also a link between Clark as a person who is inherently not dangerous to Maddie and doesn't want to hurt Maddie and wants Maddie to feel safe with this village of colorful, creative, artistic mm-hmm. people that Maddie has lost. So I think it works sort of on both of those levels as like, it's a it's a thing that's healing for Clark mm-hmm. to be able to do it again, like to have the space and the time and um and be able to kind of like revisit that part of herself that's like healing to her own mm-hmm. soul um, and it also is the thing that shows Maddie, like, this is a person mm-hmm. who is going to hurt you, you know? And so I like that just sort of as that being their kind of moment of, you know, of connectivity and that little, that little smile, you know, where Maddie's kind of like, okay, like, I will maybe just, <laughs> you know? I will consider <laughs> letting you live. <laughs> yeah. But, I, but I also, you know, one, one other, in terms of the, the kind of emotionally healing significance of, you know, of art, 
I think it's also, you know, we get that in the scene between Clark and Maddie when, you know, like the art, the art is also the lens through which she keeps all these people alive. And this is where like the the art sort of loops back with storytelling, I think. Yeah, it's like it becomes at that point an expanded like output of the radio. You know, it's a piece of keeping those people alive. Like one of the functions that Maddie serves just in terms of Clark's anchor to sanity, like you said, it's like that need to say things Mm -hmm. out loud. You know, that needs to like tell those stories, you know, like, like on a really deep level, like that's how the people that we've lost, even the ones who aren't dead and they've just been separated for a long time. But like, that's, that's how you could keep them present, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I, I remember I had this, I had this really interesting conversation once with my sister, I think like a couple years ago, and she did not for my mom's like my mom's been gone for just over 10 years, just 10 years last month. And one of the things that's been really interesting in my relationship with with my sister is that we, you know, we process that loss really differently. And and so for Catherine, there was like like a lot of like emotions on the surface. You know, like she cried a lot more than I did. Like she cried, I did not cry. Um, but how part of how I processed it was like I like I tell stories mm-hmm. about my mom all the time. You know, it's like I know people, like I have all these people in my life who came into my life after she passed away they've never met her but they feel like they know her because Mm -hmm. i talk about her constantly and so for my sister that's just that just wasn't how she processed emotion like she just didn't she kind of just didn't want to talk about it and i and i remember having this conversation with her where it was sort of like there are ways in which i think because that was how i processed my emotions was being like oh my gosh have you guys heard the story about when my mom was in college and she and her sorority sisters got drunk and they stole the foosball table from the frat house and And everyone's like, oh my God, you know. I have heard that one. It's a great story. It's a great story. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's a great story. So it's, it's both because I think it's a great story and I like other people to know it, but it's also for me, how I keep alive for me, that piece of who my mom was. Like not just the mom in like the person in that story, but like all of my memories of her Mm -hmm. telling that story and all of the different places that I remember being when that story was like all that kind of stuff. And so it just really, I think for Catherine, there's times where like with it being 10 years in the past that she having been gone so long, like she feels more distant and more remote remote in some ways, I think, to Catherine than she does to me, where for me, she feels like a person who's still like very much present. I think and, it, and the, st- the story has become the link. It's interesting and, and very poignant to me that Clark's art, Clark's drawing functions very much in that way. You know, it's a way that she, it's a sort of yes, it's, yes, it's exactly. an expression, but it's also a, a kind of a function of memory. You know, it's like a way that she, and, and you can imagine yeah. it's also kind of like people's faces fade. You know, and so like this is a way for her mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. to keep their images alive to her, you know, like literally and figuratively, like yeah. who the stories about them, who they were, you know, but also then like like the, their faces, mm-hmm. what they looked like. Yeah, and and the and the way that she chooses, it's also interesting. I think just in terms of the the few of those drawings that we've seen both in this episode and then in some of the behind the scenes pictures, how she chooses to depict. The people, like what version of that person she yeah. chooses to draw tells us so much about how they live in her memory. And also then that gives us all of the context for how, you know, how that picture becomes the opener of a story about that person yeah. to Maddie. So like, you know, the picture of Octavia that she draws isn't season one Octavia chasing butterflies and it isn't Clark's imagined artist rendering of what Octavia might have looked like on the arc as the girl under the floorboards, it's like, mm-hmm. it's Sky Ripa. It's like mm-hmm. Conclave Octavia, you know? And and so I think that's really significant, both in terms of 
the process of Clark mythologizing Octavia, the process of, you know, of how after a person's, after you've been apart for a long time, it's the big moments that you kind of hold on to and the smaller moments start to fade. And so that's like for her, that's the Octavia that she remembers. And that becomes the foundation of this myth that we can already see, you know, Maddie Mm -hmm. getting really hooked into, but it also sort of goes the other direction. Like, you know, I thought it was really interesting in the pictures that we saw of the drawing that she does of Abby, that Abby is wearing. Yeah. Yeah. And the last, however long it was that they spent together on science Island, like at, like we didn't, we never saw a moment about it, but it's like, Abby took the ring off. We know that we never, they didn't have a conversation about it between the two of them but like it was gone you know but that's the mom that she remembers and so you know and that's also a way of keeping you know a sort of secondary way of keeping jake alive i mean i'm sure there's a picture of jake in there but you know but it's like that's like the mom that she spent you know seasons two and three with like the mom that was her by her side during all these huge things that happened on the ground together like the abby that she's remembering that the abby that she draws is like I mean, like Abby the Chancellor, Abby the Battle Mom, you know, Abby who was like there when all these things happened that were like shaking up her life. You know, like not her not her mom from the arc when both her parents were alive, but you know, and not this sort of very, very new version of her mom that's in a relationship with somebody else, but like the mom where like they were like like mm-hmm. the mom she saved yeah. in Mount Weather. And so that just those little and you know, and, and some of these things I imagine will get fleshed out more and you know, maybe some of them won't, but I think that it's really it's really interesting to think about, you know, in terms of the power of art and story to shape the way that we remember people, where you kind of, you know, like after six years of that being, you know, the picture of Octavia and the picture of Abby and the picture of Bellamy and the picture of her dad or of Lexa or of Luna or Lincoln or whoever else, you know, she has she has drawings of, you know, papered up all over her house. What does it do to her memories of those people, which will kind of naturally, you know, they start to blur and fade. And then that face, it's like, this is who Octavia is yeah. to you after mm-hmm. six years. You know, like, like everything's been kind of focused through the lens of this version of Octavia who exists in this picture and these stories, because the rest of it starts to kind of get blurry with time. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Selena talked about this in her review and and again i think a little bit on the podcast but a bunch of her review and i think you know that that one of the things i think certainly that this season is doing that's really interesting is really thinking about uh, you know and this kind of ties into the into the the stuff we were talking about earlier with like the commander where where part of it is about like what happens when you when you sort of tell these stories about people that mythologize them when you when you when your memories of a person are sort of so fully shaped around a certain kind of a selectively edited version of them, you know, that is, that becomes incredibly important to you and that you kind of rely on. And that's something that, you know, that's something that, that Maddie's definitely doing with Octavia in terms of, you know, the story that, that Clark has told her and then like the version that Maddie has then created from that story. Like it's clear right, from, right. from the way that Maddie talks about her, like how could you have ever doubted her and Clark kind of looking a little dubious that Maddie has taken Clark's story of Octavia and that's transformed in Maddie's mind. Maddie has sort of reshaped who Octavia is in those stories through her own interpretation of Clark's stories. So it's like twice removed. Yes. Yeah. That's certainly something that, um, you know, that I think that Bellamy and Clark are going to have to face and that Clark has been talking to Bellamy, you know, in kind of like a one-sided way for a long, long time, you know, and, and, and she's so, like, obviously my Blark heart just like squealed and also <laughs> I literally squealed out loud 
<laughs> in that moment where she said, where she said, I just wish I knew you were alive. I wish I knew I was going to see you I, again. I was thinking of you. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, ah! um, you know, so like, it's, <laughs> because like, you know, it kind of, it shows you like, obviously my shipper side is like, ah! Uh, she's she misses him so much but on the other hand is also is is this kind of like memory of Bellamy and this memory of what their relationship was and this kind of idea like she sort of made him into this this sort of psychological crutch for herself that's probably more a mm-hmm. version of herself than it is of him you know and sort of have and and having to confront that and Bellamy same thing you know, we didn't really see it addressed in this episode, but we've been told that, like, the thing that that has shaped him, you know, and part of the reason why he's changed into the person that he is now is that, you know, his whole thing has been, like, you know, I'm going to do – I'm going to do what Clark said. I'm going to figure out how to sort of, like, yep. merge my, my head and my heart. I'm going to think about – you know, I'm going to figure out how to be a more deliberate, you know, sort of thoughtful, less impulsive leader. And he's based it around – you know, it's it's – it's all based on her memory and it's all based on the sort of like version of her that lives in his head. So like we have all these kinds of like ways where we have sort of like myths that characters have created for each other that they're going to, that are going to bump up and clash. And and I think Selena's totally right that that's like a big thing. But I, I also kind of am interested in, in the way that this episode seems to be kind of working through that or, or sort of, Introducing that theme in a really, 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 in an even broader sense, too. Thinking about, like, the way in which our identities, who we think we are, are so shaped by the story we tell about ourselves and the story we think we're living and Mm -hmm. the memories that we choose to hang on to or privilege and the memories that we choose to push aside. Like thinking about the radio, the radio is Clark trying to connect, but it's also Clark talking to herself. It's also Clark telling herself her own story. And part of the reason why Clark is able to survive part, one of the important things in like, and also I don't feel like we have not sufficiently fangirled about Clark and how fucking amazing Clark is. Like the fact that she is able to keep going like her, you know, like prying away that concrete when she's had a quarter of, you know, a like energy bar a, a per day. This hands down is my favorite iteration of Clark of the entire series. Oh, me too. Like, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like she's just, and, you know, and but like the thing that's so astonishing to me is that she is the way that she's always even, you know, she experiences moment of despair, the way that she's always able to kind of like somehow dig down deep and find her in, you know, inside of herself and find the determination to push on Mm. and some kind of, and like, just like, sometimes it's like hope, but sometimes it's just sheer, like, fuck you. I'm Clark Griffin. I'm going to keep you. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, but, uh, but I think so much of that has to do with like you, you hear her, doing that in the story that she's telling herself about what's happening to her. You know, when she says like, mm-hmm. when she's at Arcadia and she says, she's thinking about Jasper's story. You know, she's thinking like, maybe Jasper was right. What's the point of living if it's, if there's so much pain. And then she says, that's real cheerful Clark. Okay. Sorry. You know, she like, yeah, she yeah. stops, <laughs> she hears the story that she's telling herself. She starts to tell herself mm-hmm. that Jasper's story is a story of realizing that, that life is just pain and there's no point in living it. And she starts to think about 
herself in terms of that story, that Clark's story is that story. And then she stops herself and pushes on. So I think like, Mm -hmm. to me, and this is coming from like a, you know, like as a person who suffered from depression, there's, I think it's really interesting to me, like how much the experience of my identity when I'm depressed is like categorically different from my experience of my identity when I'm not to the point where Mm. there are entire sets of memories that when I'm depressed are constantly coming. Like there are entire sets of memories that define me to myself when I'm depressed that I barely think about, almost never think about when I'm not. Not that I forget them. It's not like a separate personality thing, but it's like there are certain memories, like literal memories about things that have happened or things that I've done that are defining, like these are the things that have happened that define who you are, that recur over and over again when when I'm depressed. And when I'm not depressed, they don't arise. And that's one of the ways that I know that I'm entering um, a bout of depression is when those memories return. So I'm like really interested in the way that whatever part of that illness is chemical or whatever is going on, that it also is very much bound up in identity and storytelling and memory. And so I think it's really interesting that, you know, we see some of that. We see we see Clark working through different stories of herself. There's a story of herself, you know, where she's like, bring it on, try to kill me. There's a story of herself where she's like, maybe I'm like Jasper, you know, like maybe my story is Jasper's story. There's a story of herself where she is Juan Hedda or was Ron Hedda. And like, I think that's a moment of like, who am I if I'm not these things that have defined me so far? How do you mm-hmm. define yourself when all those things are irrelevant? And I also, oh, like with the, with that too, I like, I did really like, you know, the, the, the moment when she walks into the church, like a perfect, like sort of, re, um, callback to Mount Weather walking into oh, the cafeteria. Oh my God. Yes. And seeing all those bodies. But I think it was, you know, it was like, it was a great kind of moment of because, because Clark, you know, they walked away from Mount Weather and she walked away, period, before, like, she wasn't involved in, you know, moving those bodies or whatever they did. She never really processed that. And I think this was, that was also a nice mm-hmm. little touchback of like Clark sort of being confronted with irradiated bodies of people, of innocent people, you know, so I don't know, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> we, I guess we could debate about whether or not whether people were innocent, but of the sort of people who died. Um, and then in this case, she has to stay there. You know, she has to sort of like confront those deaths and process them. And, and I think that was like a nice little kind of subtle subtextual return to that moment and the differences that instead of walking away, Clark faced it and sort of processed it. And it sort of forced her to process like, that's a piece of who I was and something that I did and what does it mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sort of really interested in the way that the way that storytelling shapes not only who you think other people are, but who you think you are and the way that it shapes behavior. Because the other thing that mm-hmm. I think is really interesting about Clark in this episode is the confrontation with Elegius. Like, I feel like in, the, in a way, the sort of confrontation where... We have two Elegious guys who find Maddie. One of them wants to, you know, is angry at her, wants to shoot her. And the other one is like, guy, you know, dude, that's a little kid. We maybe shouldn't do this. And Clark shoots the first guy. Uh, and then they, you know, they fight. Maddie shoots him, you know, because he's killing Clark. And then we get that moment, you know, where we, we get two different, basically like two different stories of who the second guy is. Maddie mm-hmm. says, like, he tried to help me. That guy, This one is different from that one. And, and so in Maddie's sort of version of things, she's like, maybe we can give this guy a chance. But I think interestingly, what's happening, you know, with Clark, 
The story that Elijah slots into in Clark's head is different from the one in Maddie. And in Clark's head, you know, where she's operating from a place of fear and she's operating from a place of, you know, mama bear wanting to protect Maddie from everybody else. I feel like she's already in a story where she's like, she says maybe, you know, there are no good guys. But when she says it, it kind of feels like, you know, the implication is like, there are no good guys. Therefore, that guy is a bad guy. That is the enemy. And she will act accordingly. And, you know, and, I, and I'm sort of interested in the way that like that, dis- her decision there, while not necessarily wrong, is shaped by the ways that she sort of slotted these people into a kind of like narrative in her head already that isn't entirely accurate and doesn't have the full information and maybe isn't the best decision. You know, like that second gunshot is what attracts the rest of the Elegious crew to them. Right. And if she hadn't shot, like if she had shot the one guy and not the other, I mean, it's possible that everything that happens afterwards could have manifested totally differently. Completely differently. If the guy had had been like, we found these guys in the woods there, you know, but like, they're okay. You know, like, there's just two of them. They're yeah. all right. Yeah. Like that guy you was know. trying to kill her. So, you know, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe it would be okay. Maybe it would have been bad. But the point is that we don't know. The rest of that story hasn't right. happened yet, but Clark has already filled yeah. it in. And is acting as though it's kind of like a foregone conclusion, which I think is really interesting. Um, When you think about, when you contrast that with, like, the first thing Maddie does is attack Clark. And Clark doesn't fill in the story that way. You know, like, she, and, and like, you know, all sorts of reasons. It's a little girl. Like, the little girl is clearly defending herself. But it's a story. Like, Clark is able to tell her story about, like, the story about that little girl is that she's a scared little girl and she's defending herself and she's just doing, you know what she needs to do and she wants to make friends. It's still a story. It's a different story. So to me, I think how I how I read that and what I think is, is interesting there, kind of piggybacking off of what you were saying, is Clark walking through the woods contemplating morality is, you know, <laughs> earlier before she meets yeah, Maddie. Yeah. You know, she's, she's thinking these thoughts about how, look, everybody has their reasons and I thought that I was always doing the right thing, but so did the other side and things were both sort of both simpler and more complicated than I at that time, you know, thought that they were. What I think happens in that in that moment with Maddie with the other guys where clearly Clark is no longer well, you know, like they shot at Maddie, but like they have their she's not she's not giving the other side the benefit of the doubt when it's right in front of her mm. the way she could when it was after the fact and hypothetical. Yeah. Because now, once again, she has people. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, like, it isn't that it's hypocritical. It's that, you know, she has kind of leisure to reflect on the lessons learned about Matt Weather and the lessons learned about Allie and the Grounders and all these things that she's been through when she believes that, like, that part of her is past. You know, she says like my fight is over. Like I'm I'm done having to be that person. So now I can contemplate the choices that I made. Do I feel like they were right or wrong? If it was right in front of me, would I make those choices again? I probably wouldn't because even Allie, like she had her reasons for why she was doing that. So it's like we're all just it's just kill or be killed. And so you can't really hate somebody for making that choice. And so so that version of Clark, in that context, it's as though there are no good guys just means nobody is black and white anything. Everyone is just trying to survive and protect their people. But I think that, to me, I think what happens when, you know, when her when her child, when her person, when her only existing living lifeline to sanity is threatened, I think what we see in that moment is like a snap back to 
the old Clark that we know and love, or at least pieces of her coming back, who does have that more kind of black and white morality and, and, and isn't thinking about, you know, these people landed here and like, they're doing things and they're trying to kill us. But like, that's just, that's just the way of nature. Yeah, she isn't stopping to think because, like, Maddie shot at them and this guy is, like, scared and confused and Maddie says he helped. So, like, let's pause and think about what the situation looks like from his perspective. In the moment, she's not able to kind of, like, see multiple perspectives. She only reacts to... That's really interesting because I think, like, that actually also gets at... I like that because I think that also gets at another um, kind of ties into what Monty says to Harper when they have that conversation about, you know, how he doesn't want to go back to the ground. And one of the things, the things that Monty says is, I don't want to be that person again. Yes. And yes. Monty kind of like that, that recognition and, and Echo has that as well. Echo, I think Monty and yeah. Echo are interestingly the two characters who sort of, who sort of recognize that, that who you are, that the idea that who you are is like totally something that you can just decide voluntarily, like I'm going to really think about it and be this person all the time, is like a little bit of a fallacy and that it's much more shaped by your context and your situation than we might want to admit, where it's like easy from the outside to say, in that situation, I would act differently. But the truth is, you don't actually know, right? you know, until right. you're in it. And so like, and so, yeah, so I, I like that I, you know, sort of looking at Clark and thinking like, okay, so like thrust into this situation again, a lot of the time you 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 will make the same mistakes, you know, or like, mm-hmm. or it's like, even if it's just kind of like, even if we want to be like less judgmental about it, not even calling it a mistake, but rather that the situation produces the behavior. This is who Clark is when she is protecting someone that she cares about. It isn't a character. Yeah. Clark. It's just a set of, it's a way that she makes choices. Which is, I think, a really, really fascinating way. I mean, I kind of suggest something that I really like, which is a way that potentially, you know, what this season is, is might be exploring too is thinking on a kind of like broader way about how, what produces and drives conflict in, in like that weird way of sort of like we're sliding inevitably back into war. Right. And was it preventable? Yeah, was it preventable? And what what about what what aspects of it actually make it preventable? And like, part of it, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, on one level, like, in terms of sheer resource availability, maybe it's not preventable. But on another, in another way, you know, it kind of makes you think about like, how much of conflict is driven by or begins because people assume that and act according to the assumption that we must be in zero sum conflict with each other. You know, like, like the thing is that Clark in that moment was thinking it's either, either this guy dies or Maddie dies, you know, either this guy dies or we die. She didn't, it wasn't possible for her in that moment to think, okay, let's pause, think about it. Like maybe both of us can live, you know, but what, but Mm -hmm. what produces the conflict What's going to sort of land Clark in the situation where, like, potentially she's, you know, thrust into existential struggle with the Elegious crew is that moment of seeing it as me or him. It was just a really interesting way of sort of thinking about conflict as, like, a conflict arising out of situations and sort of behavior that is totally human and, like, way harder to sort of think your way out of in the moment than it seems like. 
Well, and especially because she's been in this exact same situation before on the other side of it. You know, so that's the other piece that's interesting, too, is that she's also, you know, she's reliving Anya's arc. Yeah, she's the grounder, you know, yeah. like when Dioza says we're, it means we're not alone. It's like, yes, yep, here yes, we go, exactly. you know? Yeah. Yep. I think there's there's so, God, like there's, I mean, we could talk about Clark for like nine more hours, but there's, there's so <laughs> much, like the the picture of her inner life and the workings of her thoughts and emotions and conscience so there's like it's so rich in this episode there's so much there's so much clark there's so much to think about and so much going on there and but i but i do think that you know in terms of of sort of wild speculation about how you know arcs will continue to unfold i do think that one piece of this kind of you know ongoing theme of mythologizing that i'm really interested in is where are there gaps between reality and Clark's picture of her own self? You yeah. know, like is, mm-hmm. is that, is that thing about, you know, a thing I've learned about myself over the course of these <laughs> last three months of tromping through the woods is that, you know, actually Mount Weather had a point. And it's like, and, and because, because this is like, because that is like when you're years removed from something and you have that, that kind of emotional distance from it and you're looking back, you have the capability to see like those situations, to see all of that context and to see like, you know, where there was things that you were missing or there were questions that you didn't ask or where you were applying your own bias filter or whether, you know, in, in the heat of battle or life or death conflict, you're like, you know, I know why I made that decision, but I, I, there wasn't time or there wasn't space to kind of step outside of that and be like, okay, but this is what it feels like to be Maya, or this is what it feels like to be Dante Wallace, and this is why they're doing the things they're doing. So, like, you can look backwards and see that, but almost none of us, I mean, like, who has the capacity to have that thought process when there's a gun pointed at you? Nobody yeah, does, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. But I, so I, so what, what I wonder is just like, you know, this version of Clark who has definitively shed the one had a mantle. I mean, in, in this, in like in a literal baptism scene. Yeah. You know, like the voice yeah. ever happens is getting into the water. <laughs> you know, she, she physically cleanses herself from, you know, like the dust of her past. Yeah. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> and then reborn, she goes to Eden. I was thinking I mean, I about rebirth imagery when I when I rewatched it today, and like the first image of her emerging out of that hole in the earth, I was like, "Oh, hello." Yep. <laughs> the only the only thing that could have been better is if instead of forty two days, it had been three. Right. <laughs> Roll back that stone, baby. <laughs> I, <laughs> the only gift that Jason Rothenberg did not give me was like an aggressively literal detail. Um, <laughs> but that's okay. He gave me a lot of other good stuff. But um, can't be too on the nose, you know. At some I know. Point it I know. Gets too far. He's got to like, yeah, make it a little <laughs> more subtle. But um, but so so I feel like you know, so we get all of these symbolic indicators over the course of this whole journey that she takes that she perceives herself as somebody who has closed the door on that part of her identity. And the fact that she so transparently hasn't, the second <laughs> she's got a gun in her hand again, I think is is fascinating. And I wonder the journey that she's going to go on to reconcile that, like, that part of her life is not behind her. And that in the heat of battle, she still makes protective, occasionally ruthless choices 
in much the same way when she's driven by the desire to protect somebody else against an enemy. So it, so it feels like, you know, I think part of what it's interrogating is is the is this gap that we all have between the choices that we make when we're in a situation that feels like an emergency and the kind of person that we think that we are when we're given a lot of time to kind of contemplate why we made those choices. Like there's a reason that she can have a level of emotional distance about Mount Weather that she can't have about Elygius because they're right there and her kid's in danger. But we watched her put that whole part of her aside and the version of her that Maddie knows is not that person. You know, I I wonder, and I'm going to be really, really interested to see, you know, kind of how this unfolds. Like, what's the picture of of Clark's old self that Maddie got not that Clark is lying to her but you know what are the things that get told what are the things that get left out about who Clark used to be about some of the things that she's done you know how much does Maddie know about Matt Weather how much does Maddie know about you know all that kind of stuff which parts of Clark's story did she edit out you know which parts did she include yeah are there things about Clark that are going to become surprises to Maddie when when we watch her sort of snap into battle Clark mode i so so that's something that i think is really interesting is just sort of like you know are we are we watching are we setting clark up for a real challenge to this kind of pastoral picture of herself that she's had six years to to exist in and is probably a person that she likes better and would much rather be <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I think, and that's so relatable like we all have we've all experienced like there's there's versions of us that are our best versions. And then there's things, yeah. you know, we've all have a version of ourselves that we slip into. And even if you're aware that you're doing it, you can't always stop it. And, and yeah, we all, we all can yeah. be the worst version of ourselves. And yeah. you can learn slowly how to, you know, mitigate that or not wind up making the same mistakes over and over. But sometimes, Sometimes, you know, like you can be aware you're doing it and not be able to stop. Or sometimes you can just get better at realizing more quickly what's going on, but you're still, you right. know what I mean? Like, it's hard. <laughs> it is. Well, and I, and I think it's a cool place where I, where I see some really nifty parallels being set up between, you know, of, I think of all people, between Clark and Murphy. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was going to say, like, Murphy is the other really, really great example, I think, uh, of someone who is telling himself a story about who he is, that he is like totally sort of immersed in, that is shaping his behavior and shaping his relationships and, you know, in a really fascinating way, you know, like, and one of the gifts that this episode gave me that I never even knew that I wanted, but now I don't know how I lived without it, is Bellamy, like, wrestling Murphy into, (laughs) like, (laughs) holding him up against the window like a chokehold like say you're not worthless say you're not worthless <laughs> I never knew until last night that I needed oh to see Bellamy be like I will like play fight you into submission and then force you to say nice things about yourself but oh I'm just God. like <laughs> your punishment is you have to give yourself five compliments <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's like it's so beautiful <laughs> Uh, I won't let you go until you say you like yourself. <laughs> I tell you, you know, if you, if you have to pick 
which Blake's leadership style you prefer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Go back to season one and like, get, like what a mind fuck it is to think about, you know, like episode, like Bellamy in the first few three or four episodes as a leader and Octavia versus now or you're just sort of like, so if you like after that, if you'd stop me and said in five seasons, each of the Blakes is going to be a leader of a group. Which one do you think is the one that started a like fight to the death club? And which one is the one who is wrestling people into, you know, it's a submission and forcing them to say that they are, aren't worthless. And I definitely and would like, not have picked. Please give me a harder one. Come on. <laughs> Obviously, the girl who chases glowing butterflies is the one wrestling people into saying nice things about themselves. Oh, wait. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Do we have more on Clark or should we talk about Space Crew since we want to talk about Space Crew? Uh, let's just keep going with Space Crew and I'm sure we'll circle back to Clark because, and then, Yeah, well, and then I think we can we can loop back to Eligius at the end because they bring yes. both stories. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, um, I, and I do want to talk about my wife, but... Um, <laughs> As do I. I love her already. So speaking of Murphy, so staying on the Murphy track, may I just say that a thing that I would have... at any point in the past thought that I hate would hate and now is one of the things that I'm the most excited to see how it plays out is Murphy and Amori breaking up and Amori keeping all the friends in the divorce. Yes. <laughs> this new this new dynamic um cuz so this is this is the parallel that I was thinking about between Murphy and Clark that I think is really fascinating and that we got like a little kind of like a little teaser of it when we talked to Richard but like you know, there's this idea, and I think it's born out in fandom, but I think it's also just kind of like how human beings interpret, you know, story. When a character goes through anything resembling, you know, what we sort of perceive to be like a redemption arc or an evolution, you know, or some kind of a journey, that we're hardwired to expect those changes to be permanent. And I think that with Murphy and with Clark, I think in in a in ways that have very different kind of moral weight to them, like in, in manifestly differently. But like, I think what we're seeing, um, you know, like Richard kind of told us, be wary of, of extrapolating from the season four finale, that good guy, hero, Murphy, part of the family was a lasting permanent character change. You know, like the thing about Murphy is that he's always sort of situationally doing what he has to do to survive. And so for a while, what he had to do to survive was like roll up his sleeves and help Raven build a rocket to get him all the space and be on Bellamy's squad. And so fine. So he did it. But it wasn't like that was a permanent change in in who he is or how he engages with the world. And that doesn't mean that it'll like last forever. And so I think seeing him be somebody who is just losing his shit during peacetime because he feels like, you know, all of the things that sort of define him and let him be who he is like he's just he's just restless and you know frustrated and that you know that side of him that's kind of like always been an asshole you know like he wasn't he's not like permanently reformed he was just sort of like evolving situationally and i think it's gonna be really interesting to see he's in the core group of the space crew who's like desperate to get back to the ground he does want to be that person again he's the anti-monty you know he's the opposite of echo he needs to be that guy or he's got nothing and he doesn't even know who he is and i think for clark you know it's different because i think she doesn't want to be that person again i think it's just something that she can't she can't flip that switch off when she's in a situation where somebody that she cares about is in danger she just does what she does yeah 
I mean, like, the, the thing with Maddie in this episode is, like, a microcosm of her, you know, snatching the bunker for humanity in exactly. the Conclave yes. episode, you know? like Yes, it's it's every everything that Clark has ever done that somebody on the other side has perceived as bloodthirsty. They all come out of the same motivation where it's, like, my people, the people that I care about... I'm going to do whatever I have to do to save them and keep them alive. And right now the entire, like her entire world has shrunk down to the size of one person. And so there's nothing that she won't do to keep that one person safe. And, and so I think what that means is that, you know, like I said, like she's going to have to be facing up to the fact that the version of herself that she thought like, this is the new, this is the new me. This is who I am forever, you know, was in fact situational. And I think that for Murphy, who is miserable in this new version of himself, he's going to realize that that version of himself is also situational. And so I, so I think there's just, you know, they, they both become a different person in conflict and Clark wanted to get away from that version of herself and, you know, catch fish and eat fruit and wait for her friends to come home. And Murphy is like, oh my God, please like give me somebody to shoot. Like I can't, you know, I think for Murphy deal with this, you know, like being alone with his thoughts is the ultimate torture for Murphy. It's the worst. Yeah. Like Clark needed and wanted and craved that time and space to like draw and reflect and remember and tell stories, you know, and Murphy is like, get me out of my own head. Yeah, exactly. And I think Murphy's one of those people where like, and I think this is something that Richard talked about with us um, or, or touched on, but um, you know, where, where he's, there's so much sort of anguish and pain, you know, and sort of chaos and noise in his mind that when a lot of stuff is happening, you know, when, when there's just like a struggle to survive, he does great because that kind of drowns it out, you know, and he, and he yeah. can channel it towards something yeah. else. And when it's quiet is when it's the worst because he can't escape himself. You know, he, there's nowhere else to go. I really, 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 you know, sort of hope that we get to hear a little bit more about like exactly what happened between him and Amora because like, yes. it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, like I, without, without knowing the story, just seeing where Murphy is at and understanding the psychological dynamics of a personality like that. Um, and then also the kind of like the way that Murphy and Amori relate. Like I can feel it. Like I can, I kind of look at that and I'm like, ah, I know that breakup. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. seen that breakup in real life. You know? <laughs> right, right. I can sort of, I can sort of guess, but I, I really hope that we get a little bit more, you know, even if it's not flashbacks, just kind of like somebody asks him, you know, like Clark asks him maybe or something like we get some version. It would be awesome if we got both their versions, like if we got both sides of the story. Oh my God, I would love that. Yeah. You know, to kind of like understand what's happening. And Mm -hmm. because I'd love to like sort of know exactly how that that played out. And I do think, you know, like one thing I thought that they did very well, there's just like so many like subtle little emotional grace notes throughout this episode. We talked about with some with Clark, but I think on with Space Crew too, where there's like so much information conveyed in like little tiny moments really really well and i think with yes. imori and murphy is one of them because we just get a few moments of like the scale the pitch of emotion with which imori reacts to him you know is like mm-hmm. so telling like her anger yeah the anger and then and the way that it's like clear that seeing him causes her pain Mm-hmm. you know, is like really kind of telling. And then the sort of like longing looks that Murphy sends her, you know, it's like, it's very clear to me that they still really love each other. You know, that she's really angry and hurt yeah. that, that he hurt her to end it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that there's a lot of love still there. So I, I think that's setting up for reconciliation. I would expect. Oh, I know. I, I for sure do. I, I think, yeah. I think that 
which which in some ways it's like I, I feel like it's like we're kind of getting like the best of both like we're gonna get like all the angst yeah but, you know I think yeah yeah <laughs> I'm interested in when Murphy returns to the ground has the opportunity once again to like throw himself into the middle of conflict and like be the Murphy who doesn't have to think about any of his problems which is the Murphy that he prefers to be is he at some point gonna face a choice between getting to continue doing that like getting to continue hiding from himself or having like an opportunity to try to make another go of it with Amori like is she gonna put him yeah. in a position where it's like you you have to pick which John you wanna be because like I know which one I like and it isn't this guy yeah yeah like is is his arc over the course of the season gonna sort of involve that somehow because we, we know that McCreary comes into it you know like in some way Murphy seeing McCreary as that darkest timeline version of himself mm-hmm, you know so mm-hmm. is that alluring or is it a sort of there but for the grace of God and he decides at the 11th hour that he doesn't want to be that guy mm-hmm. you know and then how does that sort of affect you know how he feels about Amori so so I, I'm I'm really interested you know in how this breakup and him being kind of untethered again sends him maybe back to the beginning or having to kind of unpack some of those deeper truths about himself while meanwhile Amori gets what I always wanted for Amori which is really significant relationships with somebody who isn't him I think in our last podcast from last season we talked about how we thought that Amori and Raven should be like best friends and how much Amori would love tech and like I, oh my god, yeah. I'm not. Which is not a prediction. I think that was just a more of a like. Wouldn't that we were like? Wouldn't this be a neat, you know, dynamic? And it turns out it is. But I'm just like so thrilled that that came to fruition. Like, oh my god, yeah. The like sheer joy of Amori being like, yay, spacewalk. I'm just like, oh my darling. And Luisa Delavera has such a beautiful smile. Oh my god, such a yes. beautiful and we smile. We never gonna see it. I know. We like, gotta see it. We gotta see yeah. it. I mean, like. We barely got to ever see Amori smile, and it's like one of those crimes because Luisa Delavera has like one of the best smiles of any human being alive. Oh my god! So anytime, like her and Lindsay, just need yes. to be able to smile more because they're little rays of sunshine. <laughs> Well, and I mean, and and speaking of like you were saying before, like a tiny little moment that conveys a huge amount of history. Yeah. A little shotgun exchange around the table, like her and Monty calling shotgun to go spacewalking with Raven, which was, I mean, apart from just being incredibly adorable and endearing, it tells (laughs) us so much about, you know, like, like Murphy aside, like removing him from the equation because he's clearly like exiled himself from everybody else. Like (laughs) the phantom, (laughs) the phantom of the Mopera. Yeah. <laughs> Haunting the corridors, <laughs> being annoying, wandering alone. Ah, yeah. I'm very proud of that. Oh my God, anyway, yeah. keep going. Uh, so yeah so what I, what I loved about that was just that was like another I thought like tiny little encapsulation of what the group dynamic among them has been and how for people like Echo and Amori who either who who were have or who have been outcasts and are kind of used to like being on their own mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how are they different immersed in this family unit you know that all sits down to have dinner together and they all have private inside jokes and everybody has a job where they all feel super useful and needed you know and they like they share space with each other you know they're they're, they're roommates they have this whole kind of like language and vocabulary and so 
I feel like what's really exciting about that with Amori is that it brings out sides of her that we've never gotten to see. You know, like all yeah. we know about about her past and her background is that it was horrible. She was an outcast. You know, like she was treated as a freak. You know, she was incredibly feared and maligned and discriminated against because of who she was and that she essentially had until Murphy came along like no one except her brother her entire life and so this version of Amore who's like the backup astronaut you know like this, yeah. this version of Amore who's found like not just this group of friends but like work she's really good at yeah you know? yeah and a whole like side of herself that has nothing to do with Murphy I mean I think both for us like as an audience to get to see her as more than half of a ship or half of a pairing you know or a character who like really for the most part aside from the City of Light stuff and you know and a little bit with Jaha almost everything we know about her that's been like significant has either been with Murphy or sort of filtered through the lens of Murphy yeah so I think it's not a coincidence that this is a better and healthier and happier version of herself with people like Raven and Bellamy and Monty and Harper and Echo as her community than when she was like alone Bonnie and Clyding it with Murphy which was like you know which was fun <laughs> but it's like I think this version of Amori is a way happier and more stable person you know so so my hope is like I really want to see what the journey looks like over the course of the season for these two people to sort of find their way back to each other and I want it to be Murphy I want I want the arc of it to be like Murphy having to make a choice and whether he wants to just keep being the Murphy who hides from his feelings every single possible way that he can you know or choosing to be able to finally be like honest and vulnerable and start facing up to some of this shit in a way that Amori feels like she can trust him enough to like open her heart back up a little bit right now because right now it's locked down and that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think like there's something interesting about you know what Bellamy says to Murphy which is that he says I think your problem is that you like to be the hero and there aren't any Mm -hmm. heroes up here. And I think that's a really... I think like the the sort of like really true and profound insight about that is kind of looking at the way that Murphy sees everything, especially himself in black and white. He's either a hero or he's worthless. He's either yeah. the sort of most important kind of like hero person or he's nothing. And so there's this way where a part of makes me it makes me wonder if if that didn't play into his problems with Echo or with uh, Amori too, because clearly Amori, Amori is very happy with this larger community. You know, like she's very mm-hmm. happy being, she doesn't need to be a hero. She can, she's, yeah. she's happy being a part of a team, you know, a team mm-hmm. where there are no heroes because there is no one person who is more important than anybody else. Everybody mm-hmm. needs everyone else equally. They all have their roles. You know, they all have the things that they, that they do where the thing about, you know, like there are no heroes up here has to do with the fact that with the quality, you know, that, mm-hmm. that no one's said above anybody else. And so, you know, it makes me wonder if, Part of what Murphy struggled with was like when it was just him and Amori, it was just him and Amori. And he knew that mm. he was Amori's most important person and she was the most important person to him. And if I wonder if part of the thing that he struggled with wasn't the fact that like Amori had other people that I think yeah. he, she wasn't his, he wasn't her entire world and mm-hmm. he doesn't really know how to trust anything less than being the entire world or nothing. 
you know, which makes sense well, psychologically and, with with his background yeah, yeah, and what yeah. happened to his parents yeah. and, and oh, the totally. way that like his mother was sort of like treated him like he was nothing with his father gone or whatever. But yeah, I'm sort of, I don't know. I just think that's really kind of an interesting little like potential piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, because I, th- I think it, it, to me, it feels like the thing that he's doing is that thing that really, really like deeply insecure and vulnerable people who are terrified of rejection do where they push you away so you can't do it to them first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, so if there's a part of him that feels like his sort of sense of equilibrium was threatened because, you know, not entirely inaccurately, like the last time he was part of a community led by Bellamy, things did not end (laughs) great. Yes, yes. And, and ironically, Bellamy is the only one who will like, can, you know, carry on know, a relationship yeah. and not let him push him away. It's like, fine, yeah, I'll fight yeah. with you. I'll fight all day yeah. long. And when I win, yeah. I'm going to make you say nice things about yourself. Ha! <laughs> I'm going to punish you with hugs. Yeah. Uh, love it. There's this one uh, video I love. This is like one of the classic, I think, early viral cat related videos. But it's this like adorable little video made by a couple of guys called... Um, it's like, I can't remember exactly the title. It's something about like engineers on cats. But like these couple of guys who are engineers and they made this like little mock video about like, as if their cat is like, you know, it's sort of like, here's how to use this piece of equipment, which is your pet cat. And one of the things they talk about is um, as punishment when your cat you know, does something wrong, they use something called, they call corporal, uh, corporal cuddling, which is where they forcibly <laughs> cuddle the cat and the cat is like, doesn't want it. So it's like, absolutely like Murphy, first of all, Murphy is definitely a cat and Bellamy is using corporal cuddling. He's like, you will be cuddled. <laughs> you can squirm all you want, but I'm going to love you. <laughs> oh my God. It's so true. I love it. I love that that is like, that's Bellamy's like discipline technique. Yeah, Bellamy is like, I will love you into submission, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you 20 good things about yourself. And then when I'm done, you're gonna feel so good and happy. You're gonna not <laughs> Oh my god. I just I love him so much. I love him so much. I I, I love him so much. I adore this version of Bellamy. Like I really does feel like oh this god. is the ultimate Bell. And that's also like this just such a fucking Bellamy thing to do, you know, like the best it version totally of Bellamy. Is. Yeah. Is the one who's just well, like, damn it, I'm going to love you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and he like, he's Octavia's older brother. So he is no stranger to loving people who just kick you in the shins. To get you to leave alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's like, he's dude, like, this, this is, is nowhere nothing. near the worst that I've gotten. <laughs> like, oh, you're going to jump on my back and like talk some smack about how you're going to fight me. But then as soon as I do a single move, you crumple. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice punch. It almost hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was so... I, I I really I have to say like I I agree like soft nerd dad arc Bellamy is like peak Bellamy and I, oh and I for a lot of reasons I, yes. I think yes. Both, I, I think that the fact that as we sort of knew, because it was really sort of foreshadowed at the end of season four, that he was being really set up to take to heart in the, the person he becomes and the leader he becomes, that head heart balance, you know, that was like so important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm being the person that Clark wanted him to be. But I also feel like... You know, the fact that, you know, like he's he's one of the handful of the delinquent or of the like the younger generation of characters, or really I guess of any of the characters, such a small percentage of them have ever known anything like family. 
You know, like yeah. how we would define family. Almost all of them have had to kind of cobble it together for themselves. But Bellamy grew mm-hmm. up with it. And, mm-hmm. and so I think on some level, the same as Clark, it's something that they're always sort of in search of finding. Like it's a thing that they mm-hmm. know that they need. And so so I just, I mean, everything about the dynamics that they've created, you know, among this group with him, you know, at the at the head of it, it's just like, <laughs> like I feel really bad that you're all going to have to crash land to earth in the middle of this war happening now because it's like, I get why Monty wants to stay. Like Bellamy yeah. did a really good job. Like Bellamy built a really good life for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's, so it's really great to see, to see, him sort of fitting really effortlessly into that leader position, you know, Mm -hmm. and feeling confident in himself in the decisions that he makes and effortlessly and easily wearing this position you know as a leader without a lot of the sort of angsting over it you know that he had when he was younger that he had when you know he was sort of always second guessing his own choices and so I, I liked seeing confident grounded mature stable <laughs> bearded space dad Bellamy because it, it felt like you know they build a life for themselves that's really stable and happy and I think even though he's you know I mean of all of them of course he He's the one that is the most desperate to get back because he's the one that, you know, that has family in the bunker. Yeah, you know, it's really it's really interesting to me that for as sort of at peace, every you know, he seems to be in a in sort of like as sort of stable and, and happy as they seem to be. And like, interestingly, as as like present as he genuinely seems to be with those people sort of like emotionally, he is also the character on the arc who seems to have the most he still has kept one foot out the door. You know, there's there's right. a chunk of him, there's a chunk of like a big chunk of his heart that's still mm-hmm. on the ground, you know, and I think it's like I think that it's really there's some important sort of symbolism to the fact that when we first return to the ring in this episode, Bellamy is separate from the group, you know, like he's at mm-hmm. the window looking down, thinking about mm-hmm the ground and remembering, you know, like remembering his sister and trying to figure out how to extrapolate who she's going to be. And, you know, and meanwhile, everyone else, you know, like Raven and Echo are sparring and Monty and Harper are cooking and, you know, Maury is there and he comes back to the group and, you know, it's clear that he's not like, he's not like Murphy. He's not like out there moping around. Like, right, right, but that, yeah. but that the way that he's framed for us is like, there's a, there's a part of him, you know, is never settled. He's not settled the way yeah. that that Monty is. And of course, like, because I am who I am, I'm also like, and we get the direct cut from, you know, Clark looking right. upward <laughs> and space being like, well, they yeah. ever come down and, you know, Bellamy looking down at her and not realizing it. So like, so there's all these, like, there's a way, you know, obviously Clark talking to Bellamy, there's like all these kind of like ways that those two characters and their relationship are sort of like set up and kind of like foreshadowed as still being really central and important. Right. It's the somewhere out there scene. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Guys, if you aren't familiar with the amazing classic film An American Tale, then you definitely need to Google An American Tale somewhere out there and watch that video and cry and cry and, and cry. And its sequel, Fievel Goes West. <laughs> yes, and the sequel, Fievel Goes West. That okay, there's like two scenes from like children's animated movies of my youth that still like still when I just think about them, I can feel like the tears rising, you know, like the sort of like the the my throat closing and stuff like that. And one of them mm-hmm. is the scene where the mom dinosaur dies in Land Before Time. Yes. We'll never yes be over that. that. 
never fucking be over that in a million years. Mm. That will always destroy me. And the other one is somewhere out there from from uh, Land Before or um, uh, American <laughs> Tale. Like <laughs> both of those will always just like rip my heart out. Oh, and also um the the song that Dumbo's mom sings to him in Dumbo, like I Oh my god. I fucking yes. sob every time. Anywho. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, that kind of gives us some important information about like mm-hmm. where Bellamy is at. I also really liked, you know, and, I, and like, again, this is one of those things that like, I think they just balance so beautifully is that this, at the same time that they really conveyed so economically how happy and stable this group is and how much they care for each other and how like sort of balanced their life is, you know, we also immediately get a sort of glimpse at the tensions and that, that mm-hmm. some of the tension comes from the fact that everybody else, they've agreed they're not going to talk about how long it's been. You know, I don't, I don't think that like Monty's been counting the day like other people haven't been counting mm-hmm. the days but like Bellamy has been fucking counting the days like he knows to the day six yeah. years seven days like he knows yeah um exactly how long it's been you know and I'm really interesting to see interested to see how Bellamy and Raven's relationship gets fleshed out because mm-hmm. you know it felt so so bad for Raven in that moment you know where she's clearly just devastated that she can't solve this problem and Bellamy is just like mm-hmm. so desperate to get down there you know like he just this isn't his life, you know, like this is a temporary yeah. thing. Yeah, and and it's like, and no one has done anything wrong. Like it isn't bad that he wants that. It's yeah. just that like Raven is also doing her fucking best, you know, and, yeah. and it isn't magic, you know, and what I really loved, you know, and I, and I hope we get more of it, but one of the things that I was really hoping for and the space crew stuff that I was so thrilled by was just little snippets of like the space crew girl squad, you know, yeah. like, everyone leaping to Raven's defense, like mm-hmm. Harper and Amori both jumping in and being like, first of all, we had a rule. So you have to go scrub the latrines now because you said the thing that we don't say. And also Amori being like, she was working on it all day. Like, what more do you want her to do? Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And and so just sort of the little sort of glimpse at the careful truces that they have struck mm-hmm. because there's only like half a dozen people living in a tin can for six years. <laughs> yeah. You have to be intentional about how the things that you say, you know, and the way that you behave towards each other when you're like living in community with like that small of a group of people for mm-hmm. that long. And that's why Murphy's dangerous. Like not mm-hmm. just because he's a pain in the ass to Amori, but because you can't have somebody there at the dinner table who likes to just like throw a bomb and watch it go off mm-hmm. conversationally. Yep. Like you have to quarantine that person or he'll voluntarily quarantine himself because otherwise it's like you can't like it would just probably everybody was fighting with each other when Murphy was around yeah you know because Mm -hmm. he sort of thrives on that chaos and so the fact that like he's exiled to his other you know the other side of the ship which is the only way they can get to have a nice quiet pleasant meal (laughs) like that makes sense you know because like the chaos bringer is like locked up in the brig or whatever Uh uh-huh But so I liked, you know, I liked the way that everyone kind of instantly jumped to Raven's defense. But I also, I think you're right. Like, I think what's cool about that sort of transition shot that goes from Clark and Maddie, you know, up in the sky to the arc. I like that the linchpin is Octavia. Yeah. I I like how it's really exciting to me to sort of knowing like how big her arc's going to be, how present everyone's different myths of Octavia mm-hmm. are in this episode because for Maddie, you know, like she doesn't call her Octavia. She calls her Sky Ripper. You mm-hmm. know, it's like that's the version of her that she wants to meet. That's her like superstar, you know, mythical hero. I think we could test so one thing that when we got to meet Jason in Vancouver in January, um, one thing that he told us that was like embargoed, you know, like we couldn't, we couldn't tell anybody for a long time is that he told Lola her sort of direction 
for, you know, for Maddie and Octavia's, he told her that Octavia is Maddie's One Direction. Yeah. <laughs> like, think about Octavia. She's like the number one fangirl. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that is your, like, the biggest, you are the biggest fan. They are the biggest stars. You're like, this is everything you, like, sort of imagine. You have this whole, like, fangirl world built around yeah. Octavia. You know, and I think that's a kind of, like, a helpful way to... That's kind of like the role that she plays in in Maddie's imagination. Yeah, I think that like there, so there's the like, there's her kind of perception of like, of who Octavia is, like what Octavia like me and I want to be Octavia when I grow up. But that picture, like the picture of Octavia that she's mythologizing, then we like zoom straight upwards to Bellamy at the window looking down and the version of Octavia that he's mythologizing and missing and longing for is potentially very different. But neither of them, as we saw from that very last little... (laughs) (laughs) little little cut at the end of the episode neither of them are correct yeah no could have predicted the (laughs) underground fight club but um but so yeah so i so i like the idea that she's the character that kind of mythologizing plot kind of centers around the most neatly and it's a reminder that like bellamy's doing it too like Mm -hmm. he's doing it in a different way and i think that's really interesting that like it seems like you know the the sort of source of conflict between bellamy and echo is like mm-hmm. they have very different memories and different formulations of who Octavia was and will be. Yeah. You know, and there's the kind of yeah. the version of it that Bellamy is saying is like, no, 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 she'll forgive you. You know, she'll forgive you. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And Echo is sort of like, Echo's like, mm, will she though? Yeah. Echo's like, I'm not, that you know, I'm not. Doesn't sh- feel right to yeah, me. Yeah. And like, yeah. and it's sort of interesting the way that memory plays in the kind of theme of memory mm-hmm. um, and what memories you choose to sort of privilege as being important and which right. ones you just choose to sort of let go of or dismiss. You know, Bellamy, like, she reminds me, like, um, hey, remember how I tried to kill her uh <laughs> and Bellamy's like oh yeah 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 you know like I, I didn't you know forgive you for three years but she will too so there's a kind of way where like he has emotionally processed that fact and sort of set that like he's like okay like yes I know but like I processed that and learned not to have that be the thing that that isn't the thing that defines you as a person and you know but mm-hmm. Echo has a point she's like okay but that doesn't mean that that Octavia will you know like that the memory of me kicking her off a cliff might be a little bit like loom larger in her mind than. <laughs> well, and then and then the conclave stuff too. I mean, like this yeah. is the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like that, you know, that she tried to kill her again. Yeah, that's when true. She tried to like like sabotage the conclave, uh-huh. and Octavia is living every single day in the fallout of how the conclave ended. Yeah. So like Octavia has no emotional distance from the things that happened in that episode. Yep. When the conclave happened, like the reason that she has to work this hard to keep her subterranean murder kingdom together is because of the conclave, because of the things that happened, because of how it ended. So I I mean, I think it's interesting, like, you know, in the, in the same way that, you know, the characters who are family with each other sometimes have the hardest time seeing each other accurately and they kind of need, like the same function that Kane in season two served a lot for Abby being yeah. like, you know, where Abby could not see Clark with any kind of distance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's seeing the version of Clark that existed in her head and Kane's like, okay, Okay, yeah, she's a high school student, but also she's leading these people, you know? And yeah, he's like, I understand and- that you look at her and she's still like the little girl that and she's she was. Still, like- Like a toddler that you're, like, having to teach how to, like, you know, teach how to walk. Yeah. But the reality that you can't see because you have your mom goggles on 
is actually that like she is like you don't have to like it but she is their leader yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and because he has that distance and he knows both of them he can be like here's the piece that you can't quite see and so it was really I think really neat for us with the knowledge that we have of what's happening that Bellamy doesn't have yet for us to see that in that moment Echo knows his sister Mm -hmm. much better than he does you know and my projection is that Echo (laughs) is much more likely to be accurate here than (laughs) Bellamy yes because Bellamy is like, well, for me, like you said, like for, you know, for me, I have like, I worked through this and it took me this long. And these are the steps that I went through. And this is the journey that I went on. But I am there. So naturally, she will get Octavia there. Octavia will be too. And Octavia, and yeah, and Echo, I think rightly is like, okay, but you literally lived with me every single day for three years before you even forgave me and then lived with me a while right. longer. You know, so like, I think she, mm-hmm. you know, she has a clear understanding of like, you know, again, like, again, how situation shapes these things like someone you live with every single day you cannot help but see them as a full person because you see them all the time every day and also someone that you rely on you know there's only six of you you Mm -hmm. all rely on and bellamy even says it you know like we kept each other alive all of us you know like as this unit like someone whom you rely on for your physical survival and sort of eventually and your community is like Mm -hmm. they will become a dimensionalized person like it's really hard to kind of like hold on to a grudge where you just dismiss a person because of a couple of really horrible things they did in that situation you know but I think you know Echo recognizes like yes because we were thrust into the situation and it might not have happened otherwise and that ain't happening with you know Octavia Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think that she's looking at it from the point of view of, like, whatever things are like in that bunker, and they don't really... They don't know. I mean, they 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 couldn't possibly. Know. They don't even. They don't even actually know at this point. Six years in, they have no way of knowing if they've gotten out or not. You know, like like they could already have made it to Eden. Who the hell knows? You know. But so even given this sort of the the magnitude of that giant, what is her life now? Kind of question mark. I think the you know the reality of it is that Octavia has has not been in a position where it would make logical sense that all of the things that sort of drove her to the place that she's in now would be sort of like water under the bridge. Because the space crew people, they are physically removed from the conflict of everyone that's left of the human race. Like they literally physically removed from it as far as you possibly could be. And whatever's going on with Octavia, I think the thing that Echo can understand that Bellamy, you know, can't see in the same way is that whatever's going on with whoever is left on Earth, Octavia's in the middle of it. And the things that she had to do, the things that she might have, like the choices that she might have had to make, um, and, you know, even going back to the things that she did six years ago, the day of the Conclave, that like made everyone's survival possible, she's still living in the, like, that's what she's living in the middle of. And and so unlike people like Clark and like everybody on the arc where things have quieted down to a degree where you can think through your moral choices like Clark was doing, or you can kind of come to a reconciliation with somebody that you thought was an enemy, like Bellamy did with Echo. There's no way, there's no picture of Octavia's life that they could possibly have that's remotely realistic where she would have that space. And and so I think that's the piece that Echo gets that he is maybe maybe wishfully thinking, trying to sort of like evade, both because I think, I mean, like not just because he doesn't want Echo and Octavia to like be, you know, fighting each other, but also because I think he doesn't want to, I think he's trying in some ways to like, 
Like, that's the moment where he's trying to give himself a little bit of a rosier picture of what life's been like for his sister. Yeah. Down there for six years when he couldn't protect her. He's kind of telling himself a happy story about things as to kind of, like, keep his head, of you know, above water. You know, it's like a way, it's a coping mechanism. And I think for him also, like, interestingly, speaking of stories, it feels like for him, the kind of, like, ending of this story... There's a happy ending where his sister is alive and she comes out of there and they're reunited. And I don't think he's really thought much beyond that moment. And Echo's thinking beyond that. Echo's thinking like, okay, we open that and then we keep living. And what happens after that? And Bellamy's right. like, my sister's alive. Cool. Anyway, and then it's just happily ever after, you know? Yeah. And and Echo's like, I am technically still outlawed. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Echo also, I think, recognizes in a way that Bellamy doesn't. Because I think for Bellamy, interestingly... You know, there's, there are characters who are sort of like, like Monty and Echo are really aware, you know, like we've talked about, about the way that sort of situation shapes relationships and identity, you know, like who you are has a lot of who you are has to do with what situation you're living in. With where you are. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where you are and who you're with. And, you know, and so they're aware that like going back to the ground will fundamentally change that no matter what, like it will change and also for them, the like part of that is that they see a very definitive break between those two things. There's the ground and there's the sky. And those two things are like, are discontinuous. You know, they're disjunct, disjointed. And I think for Bellamy, you know, interestingly, like, and I think this is reinforced in the way that like, again, you know, our first, the first thing we see of Bellamy is looking down to earth. Those, there's a continuity. Those two spaces are continuous. You know, the ground has always been inherently connected to life on the ring because every moment he's up there has been the whole the whole arc of that experience, no pun intended, has, ends for him with getting back down to the ground. This is a, a sort of middle section of the story that is bookended by being on the ground. There is no version of this of this sort of story of Billamy's life in his head that didn't where he stayed up there forever, you know? And so I think for him, he sort of sees this as like, yeah, no, nothing's changing. This is always the trajectory we were on. We were always going to go back down. He's kind of not able to perceive or like understand or or sort of recognize the ways that that changing spaces, changing locations is going to fundamentally change relationships and situations. Like as far as he's concerned, he's like, you know, I think there's like something so... Like the whole scene with him and Echo is is foreboding a little bittersweet sweet because you know he walks in and Echo's holding his sword you know and he makes a joke about suicide and she says what are we now you know like I think for her she understands she sort of sees like no matter what happens the relationship that she has with Bellamy is sort of fundamentally wrapped up with the life that they lived on that ring. And regardless of who is still alive on the ground and what happens when they get there, that's going to change. And she, I think, interestingly, like there's a, some there's some tension that comes from the fact that she clearly doesn't necessarily believe or trust that it can survive that change. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, that she is very aware that Octavia is going to be a source of conflict, is a source of conflict in a way that Bellamy is like clearly just kind of pushing away wishfully. 
which is really interesting to me. But like, she's so palpably aware. And I think the sword is so interesting, partly because I, I really, my friend Brittany is like really obsessed with this. Like, she's like, did she bring it to space? Because that seems like a bad idea. Like, why would you bring a sword on a spaceship? Did she forge a sword while they were up there because she was that's, bored? Like, I want to, be- yes, that's what I want. I want to believe that she was bored and she just like made herself like a whole weapons locker. I would believe it, frankly. Like, I totally believe yeah. that she was like, when she had downtime, she was like, well, what are my hobbies? Like, what do I know how to do? Make weapons. Okay. Raven's got tools. They can figure it out. And also, like, speaking of, you know, going back to Clark and sort of what we were talking about earlier about the way of, like, sort of how anticipating conflict, you know, and sort of, like, bracing yourself for a fight kind of, like, shapes your behavior in this situation. Like, the fact that that Echo, like, she's holding a sword, she's contemplating it, she decides to bring it. She is anticipating She's not like looking for a fight means that she wants it. I don't think she wants it, but she expects it, you know, which is like a very different way of encountering this change than Bellamy has, obviously. It's such an illuminating kind of little look at the way Echo moves through the world. And I think that that choice to take the sword with her, you know, you know, she and she and Monty. And, and I think there's, there's 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 some interesting little parallels too in the, the Echo Bellamy conversation and the Monty Harper conversation about you know, I mean, I was like, the, the relationship's really different, but both for Echo and for Monty, I think there's this sense of this relationship with this set of dynamics is only possible because we are kind of all in this, because we are in the bubble. Yes, you know? yes. Like, and and not, not just Echo inside the bubble, but the version of Bellamy that exists with her inside that bubble. That's the Bellamy that she's with. And I think that for Harper and Monty, Monty being able to take the breathing room that he wasn't able to take before to process the magnitude of those losses that he experienced and find happiness again. And for Harper to be like, you know, recentered in herself too, because like she was also so vulnerable at the end of the last season and also almost took her own life too. And, and so they up there in space with like nothing to hurt them, nobody chasing them. Like this is hardwired. Like this is, this is the version of Monty that didn't want to leave Mount weather. Like this is like, like Monty being someplace where like nobody is shooting at him where he can just be a person and be surrounded by his friends and people that he cares about. He never wanted this. He never wanted to be a warrior person. Like this version of him up there, you know, being a farmer like his parents, you know, keeping everyone alive wearing his sassy little apron um, <laughs> and being, you know, happy like with his friends and, you know, and with like, a girl who loves him and having work that has meaning and feels important. This is the version of himself that he wants to be. And he knows that it is only possible in this sort of sanctity of this artificial bubble because everything that he knows of being outside on earth, it has all been bad. And that's why it took him so long like it took him and Jasper such a long time to finally believe Clark that Matt Weather was sinister and dangerous because they were like, we're indoors. We have cake. Like, please let us stay here. <laughs> you know, Like for the love of God, don't take this away from us. You know? And so I think in some ways there's shades of that same Monty here. Who's like, I'm only able to be this person and have this stable, grounded relationship that he has with Harper, you know, and her the same, because, like, they've had the time that they needed, finally, to work through all of this stuff, and they're safe now, you know? And I think the difference is, like, Harper has a little bit more, I think, grit and resilience, and and a little bit more, I think, per- 
like maybe not a sense of adventure, but like, like she's ready. Like she feels like we did it. We healed up. We're strong enough. We can get back in the game. And Monty's like, I don't know that we are, you know? Yeah. And, I think Monty, I think that- Monty feels, I think he's more haunted by what he did and what happened. Harper feels a little bit more agency over, you know, what happened, what we did, what we did in the past, what happened, what happened in the past, like who we are now, we're going to go, we're going to live this life. And Monty's a little bit more like, I was in a place and I did these things and then I left that place and I didn't do these things and I don't want to go back to a place where I could do those things again, you know? So like, yeah, he's a little bit more haunted by knowing that, that there is a sort of version of him inside of him who can kill his own mother. Well, and I, cause I think they're the specific nature of the, of the things that they were grieving is so different. Like for Harper, it was like, she kind of walked right up to the brink of choosing to take her own life. And then at the last minute she chose not to. So like she had, like she took back her own agency in a yeah. lot of ways. Mm-hmm, like she was mm-hmm. sort of, so I think that she needed time to heal. She needed a safe space. She needed that community. She needed to be with her friends and, you know, and with Monty and like have that time. But she very much feels like she has worked through what she needs to work through. And she feels strong enough to go back there to reenter that world and be like, I'm not going to make that same choice again. Because the person that she was going to put in danger was was herself. And she's like, well, I know that I don't that I don't feel that way anymore, you know. And, and the thing that Monty... I think is is facing is like having taken somebody else's life is a whole different kind of moral thing that is not the kind of person that he ever thought that he was. And up here, where there's never going to be a need for it, he can be the Monty that he wants to be. And down there on Earth, it's like every single thing about Earth to him, it's like you're going to have to kill somebody. Bad things are going to happen. You know, you're going to lose. You're going to lose your best friend. You know, and I and I did appreciate that that you know that he mentioned that he still thinks about Jasper. You yes, know, that's a piece of. Yeah, who he is and what he and what he's sort of like, still a little bit struggling to process, you know, like still, still is sort of like painful enough and emotion and present enough that it feels dangerous to go back to the place where it happened and have to sort of like confront those feelings again. Yeah, like because it's still raw. And I also like the little the way the way that that little exchange between the two of them kind of shorthanded like. This is a conversation that they've had before. Harper Harper comforting him in this particular way has become part of their healing together. I came away from that scene feeling like they've been talking about Jasper all the time for six years. But I th- yeah, but I think that Monty Monty has this picture of Earth that's very much, I think, like some of the things that we heard Jasper say, although with Jasper, it also was this kind of sense of reverence and amazingness, but also that it's a terrible place. The Earth is beautiful, but it is also going to just beat you down until you're totally broken. And I think that for Monty, all he can see is the bad. Every place that he's been that has been living wild on Earth, like it's all ended in disaster, you know, and he's like, I wanted to sort of stay up here and not and not have to you know, not have to face that. I think it makes sense for him, for who he is, that he's resistant. And I think with Echo, you know, I think the thing that's really heartbreaking is Echo and Monty are a realist about what Earth has been like for everybody in a way that Bellamy, who thinks he's going to get to see his sister again in a couple of days, isn't capable of being right now. And, you know, and and the Harper, who's sort of more eternally of an optimist, she's not seeing it in that same way either. But like Echo and Monty know this is who we are. Like this person is who I am, you know? And so when Echo takes that sword, 
she's resigned to the fact that the bubble is gone now. Like she's resigned to the fact that the version of Echo that she got to be for six years who was, instead of being an exile who everybody hated and was out on her own, was part of a family, had a community, had a group of friends, was trusted, was loved, had work to do, inside jokes, and, you know, like, teaching, and, like, teaching Raven how to fight. Raven's entire physicality is different because of six years of Echo training her. Like, she was doing things that were, like, really important, you know, and, um, and she mattered to these people so much. It's really kind of devastating when she picks up that sword again, where it's sort of like, this is her kind of resigning herself to being like, I have to go back to being the old Echo now. I have to put that armor back on. And it was really restful for six years to lay that burden down for a minute and get to just like be a person in a way where Amori, I think who also was an outsider, but in Mori's transformation, I think was less situational and more permanent. Like she found a place and she trusts that when they go back down to earth, that she will still have that same place. Her friendship with Raven and her significance to the group aren't going to diminish when they land on earth. Like she doesn't feel that same sense of vulnerability. And Echo, I think feels very, very vulnerable about like, you know, not, not even just, about her relationship with Bellany, but her belongingness. Yeah, exactly. She's like, I belong because we were up here together in this group, but she doesn't seem to fully right. trust but like, that that they will didn't pick her. Yeah. yeah, that that will that that will last. Well, I mean, I think she's just aware that it will change, and she doesn't yeah. necessarily trust that it will change in a way that is. I mean, like, I think just change. You know, it's just going to change. Whatever it is, it's going to be different. Um, whatever it is, there are going to be other people that will always like, you know, shift dynamics and, and, and complicate things. And I think she just, I think she just feels like what exists up there is way more sort of contextual than, than like Imori seems to feel like it is, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she's kind of like, all right, that part of my life's over now and then picks up her sword and, and like, that's the end of it. So it's like, I think for her, it's like, we're watching a door closing and for Monty too, where the rest of them are just kind of like, yay, the day we've been waiting for is finally here. Yeah. Like (laughs) goodbye life. I actually was really, really starting to get used to. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of them are like, finally, the thing that we've been waiting for the next chapter can begin. And then Monty and Echo are like, Oh, great. Okay. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're leaving the story I wanted to be in, and now we're you know, re-entering the story that I was hoping was over and isn't. <laughs> I really, really hope that Echo's – that Echo, first of all, gets, like, a real character arc this season, you know, because mm. I think, like, one – last season – she was really, you know, an interesting character with a lot of potential, but I felt like for most of last season, she was really underwritten, you know, it was like just kind of... I always want more from her, yeah. Yeah, and there was a, and there like a lot of, you know, like most of what she did was just kind of like plot driving and, you know, and she only really had a relationship with, with Bellamy. And so I, what I'm hoping is that that scene is setting up an arc for Echo that is about her figuring out who she actually is and where she actually belongs outside of this kind of set context. Because she went from Asgata, which was like very, very sort of, you know, like kind of hierarchical structured thing where she was like, she knew exactly who she was. She was, you know, spy and protector of the monarch of Asgata. And that like completely defined her life. Everything about who she was 
and, you know, what she did and what was right, what was wrong all came from that. And then that was stripped away from her and she was sort of loose ends. And then she winds up on, you know, the ring with these people. And so she went from one context where like the situation, the kind of structure of the society she was in told her who she is to another situation where, again, like the sort of very like set structure, like again, not hierarchical, but very set kind of, you know, discreetly defined kind of like group. She knew exactly who she was and how she fit in that. But like neither of those things necessarily, I think, I think the hint that we get in this, um, in that little scene is that neither of those situations entirely fit who she actually is. Echo wasn't entirely just Naya's cold-blooded warrior. But also, like, who she is on the arc clearly isn't, like, she sort of suppressed a part of herself. That's not completely her either. And so I'm hoping that, like, this, you know, that what she gets is a story about figuring out in a more kind of, like, real way, in a less sort of contextual way, you know, in a more kind of, like, internalized way. All right, who am I exactly? Where do I fit in this world if I'm not Asgita anymore? And, and I am space crew, but space crew isn't just space crew anymore. Like when our, there's, it's not just the sort of seven of us, there's other people too. Like, where do I fit in this world? I hope it's a story about that. Like, that's what I'm hoping for, for Echo. Like, has anyone ever asked Echo what she wants out of life, who she wants to be. I feel like her life has been so much about like choices being kind of removed from her or, or yeah. reacting mm-hmm. to choices that happen, reacting to a situation and having to kind of like decide very quickly what you're going to do. And without the kind of luxury to be like, if I could be anybody, who is that person? You know, she's never gotten to ask herself that. And like, I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I really, I want us to get a chance to like, sort of take that journey with her. Cause I think, you know, she's to me, I feel like one of the things that's really interesting about her that we've, that we've gotten bits and pieces of that. I really feel like there's so much room this season for so much more of it, you know, is the fact that like, you know, she's kind of, she's kind of one of those battle Hufflepuffs, right? Like she sort of imprints herself <laughs> onto like her loyalty is when she picks a person, she is like their ride or die person. So first it was Naya, you know, and then once Naya has gone, they know then it's Roan, you know, because he makes, you know, logical sense. But then, then the next kind of jump is that it's Bellamy, which is, which is a way bigger kind of line to jump, not just because she's always admired him and, and found him, I think, interesting. And like, he's always sort of been like different from everybody Ellison Sky Crew to her, you know, in a bunch of different ways, but also because he is the leader. And it, you know, it it makes me think of there's a there's a great line that I love in in the West Wing where President Bartlett's talking to uh his chief of staff, Leo, and it's like a flashback when when he's first running for president and he says, um, this is Leo, the difference between us is I wanna be the guy. And you want to be the guy the guy counts on. Like, some people are just, like, hardwired to be, built to be somebody's, like, right-hand man. Uh-huh. You know? And, yeah. And some people are built to be leaders. And some people feel like the way that they have value is to be the person that the leader can't get by without. And I feel like with Echo, I think a lot of the relationships that she's been in have kind of put her in this position where she's, like... It's all kind of like, yes, my lord. You know, like, like she's indispensable <laughs> to Naya and to Roan, you know. She's really good at what she does, but she's never gotten to be a leader. Like, what would, what would leader Echo be like? What would it be like if, you know, if, if groups start branching off into smaller groups and Echo ends up being the leader of one of them? Who is that version of Echo? You know, so I, so I think that, that to me, I think is, I'd be interested to kind of see an arc for her that gets to explore 
the ways in which maybe the fact that she's been so shaped by this really hierarchical society that prized where her loyalty was basically the thing that she had to give of most value. Is there an element of that in how she imprinted herself on, you know, like now she's Bellamy's person, you know, like she kind of always needs somebody where she has to be their person. And, you know, who's a version of Echo kind of like on her own, untethered from that. And what kind of journey does she get to go on? So yeah, I'm just, I'm really, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful that her, arc this season is more than just love interest like I don't I'd be really really unsatisfied if that's all we get of Echo I think I think that would be a disservice certainly to Tasia, but also to the character no I agree yeah no I I just I really hope we get some sort of like deeper exploration of the character than just whatever <laughs> love interest. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm hope. I mean, I'm hopeful that the fact that they bumped her up to series regular and she's in the credits now. I, I assume I'm that that is a sign that there's big stuff coming. I'm hoping. I would, know? I would hope so. I would hope so. Like I want, I want to believe. Yeah, me too. And especially since that scene seemed to ter- telegraph pretty clearly to me that Bellamy and Echo are not going to last. Yeah. The fact that we didn't see it happen on screen usually, like, that's a that's a kind of sign. And then also the fact that that their first introduction is, like, you know, here are all the massive, like, issues that we're facing. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> also, Echo is, like, a little bit kind of, like, her mind's sort of halfway out. Like, she's, she's not really comfortable in this, I think. It feels to me like that that's that they're there's you know they're not gonna sort of last the whole season and that what I really don't want is for that relationship to be or for echo you know as a character to be just a sort of impediment to Belark. I don't want, you know, a love triangle or even a crypto love triangle, which is why it's nice that the conflict is being framed around Octavia. My guess is that's why. Yeah, I think that's super important. Yeah, yeah, you know, so that the issue is like, is Octavia. But yeah, so I hope, you know, like I, I just, I just, I hope that Echo gets her own story, basically, is what it comes down to. <laughs> I think that's super, super important. I think that, you know, however, I think however people sort of feel about like the shipper, don't like the shipper, whatever. I, 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 I would like to believe that a thing that we can all agree on is that Echo deserves a significant story where she gets to be her own person, kind of regardless of how their relationship unfolds. And like, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I, I, to me, it felt very much like the peaks we got at Space Crew introduced two big seismic relationship shifts kind of paralleling each other. One, which is Murphy and Amori breaking up and one, which is Bellamy and Echo are now together. And, and to me, they both really felt like these are kind of our anchor cornerstone moments to, to illustrate to the audience, the significance of the amount of time that's passed and how much everything has been kind of like shaken up and rearranged and redistributed and relationships have shifted, you know, the six years is a long time, everyone kept saying, you know, and <laughs> so those, I feel like those two, those two moments are kind of bookended as like, this is how we're, you know, we're sort of shorthanding to the audience all of the different growth and changes and relationship shakeups and whatever that everybody has gone through in this time is that, you know, this couple that was like so solid at the end of last season can hardly be in the same room together. And these two people whose relationship has been full of all kinds of conflict 
are now like, you know, in, in a relationship that's been going on for three years where, and that's very, you know, and they're happy and, and, you know, they seem really stable and Echo was like, really like, I don't want to leave because like, I like this nice thing that we have and I know it's going to fall apart. But, but so to me, it felt like I didn't necessarily, I'm, I'm with you. I think the fact that we saw neither of those things happen um, and no lead up into those things and that they were kind of both presented as like OMG surprises, you know, kind of like one at the beginning of that space crew moment and one kind of at the end makes me feel like both of those things will change over the course of the season. Mm-hmm, I agree. Um, it was also interesting to me that like leading up to that last moment with Bellamy and Echo, like again, there was no, no indication like, especially compared to Monty and Harper, who got a bunch of cute little moments, you know, like yeah, leading yeah. up to their sort of conversation. Um, there was no sort of like way in which we were sort of like introduced to Bellamy and Echo as like, hey, aren't they cute couple like all together? It was just sort of like, oh, now they're kissing and they're talking about their problems, you know? So it was sort of like, right, yeah. it feels like as those, as you know, if we think about like this, this episode is sort of being like, all right, here is here's this new status quo. Now the status quo is going to be disrupted and the story is going to change. You know, like the kind of like what we're told is the status quo is Murphy and Amori are broken up. Bellamy and Echo are together and things are starting to change. Therefore, this you know, the sort of starting point is not going to remain the same. And so I think for a lot of these characters and a lot of these relationships, we're going to be introduced to things that feel like extreme changes or things that mm-hmm. feel really, really disastrous, you know, like when we get down to like the bunker stuff, things that seem like rifts between characters that we're used to thinking of as, you know, being really close together, like lots of things like that, that are, that are, I think, a way to continually remind the audience of just how significant a period of time six years is in the lives of these people, especially for the ones who all met on earth and it's only been like a year maybe that they've all they've even all known each other so so every it's not just that this is the new normal it's that everyone has spent a long time getting settled into that new normal and so the shakeups to it have to be really violent to knock them out of that so yeah so so i definitely you know i i to me i think i think if we were meant to read Becco as an end game ship and if we were meant to read that Mamori is like Dunzo forever um, <laughs> I I think that they wouldn't use those things as reveals yeah I think they would have given us flashbacks to kind of baby step into them I still yeah. think and hope and think it's really important that we will get on on both of those things that will get more context like if it isn't flashbacks if it's conversations the way the other characters talk about those characters could be really interesting you know mm-hmm. like what do Raven and Echo say about the Mamori breakup what do Monty and Harper think about Bellamy and Echo you know like like some way to give us more insight into how those really seismic changes kind of came to be, I think would be really helpful in like fleshing that out. But I think the fact that they were both used narratively as like OMG moments to me feels like, like you said, this is kind of like we're laying the foundation and that at some point these things may shift, which is, which is not to say that we know what that will look like or how that will happen or when that will happen or on what timeline, but it does feel like the relationships, like Marper, my hunch is that the storyline we're going to get for them 
they're going to be a unit all season. Like that I think felt so. like yeah, the no, groundwork yeah. mm-hmm. being laid for them is very much that because we yes. have that lead in, you know? And I think with, with like Murphy and Amori, we've seen them go through a lot together and come out the other side of it, which makes me feel like this place they're in, you know, is temporary. So I, mm-hmm. so I think I, I'm, you know, my, my sort of bottom line is like, there's almost nothing that I'm not, willing to love if they do it well. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think like in all these, like all these big changes, I think that again, like, you know, this is like a, this is an episode of that was like 40 some minutes long that felt like it was much longer in a lot of ways because they managed to convey so much story and so much information and so economically. And I think that in both the case of Memori and Becca, like, I don't, I don't really actually need either of those things being spelled out. I understand. How, I can understand yeah. just from yeah. what we're given how they happen. Both of them are like, all right, you know, like I get the logic. I understand sort of emotionally how these things happen. So like if we, if we don't get it fleshed out, I, that's fine. I can roll, I can roll with that. And there's also yeah. kind of yeah, sense yeah. of like, you know what? It's like a time jump. At some level, there are just going to be like, guess what? This is how it's happening now. You know, they're kind of telling right. you what the beginning yeah. of the story is. And so you either decide you're going to roll with it or you're not. And I don't really see much point in not. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and also, I mean, I, I think that I think the thing that's really important to to keep in mind for context on all of these big changes is we are one thirteenth of the way through this season. Yes, exactly. Like, and this is very much a sort of like welcome back to the story. Here's an introduction, you know, reintroduction to exactly what's happening and who these people are. I love this episode because they took a moment. Like, thir- they only have thirteen episodes, and they took a moment to do an episode that is, like, very, very light on plot. You know, like, this is really a story mm-hmm. that just kind of mm-hmm. sets up in very preliminary way. This is an episode that puts the chess pieces on the board. They haven't even started to move yeah. yet. Like, nothing has even happened yet. We just, like, we know, like, here are conflicts. People were in one place, and now they're going to start moving along. And even then, like, I think, you know, the next episode, we don't even have the full setup for the bunker. So, right. So, and I, and I really like that kind of patience is ballsy. And I also really admire it because I think, you know, and we've talked about this in the past. I think you, one way that season three and four to some extent suffered a little bit is uh, it was from impatience to get to plot. Yeah. You know, like sacrificing the setup. yeah, Yeah. Rushing the setup or rushing sort of emotional. Um, stakes, payoff, and setup did a huge disservice, I think, to the story they're trying to tell. And so I'm really, I really admire and appreciate that they are taking the time to carefully set things up so that when they can start knocking over those dominoes, you know, like you, we have a moment right. to appreciate like, wow, that's a really crazy, amazing, elaborate set of dominoes you just set up. I wonder how it's going to go when you start knocking them over. So when they right. start knocking them over, then you can sort of like fully soak in watching them fall. Yeah, and you're hooked and you get it. Well, and I also think too, what I find really heartening about the really deliberate pace of the storytelling we got just in this episode is to me, and, and also because because we know that, I mean, episode four, I'm not so sure, but my sense is that structurally, Episodes two and three are also similar in that it's 80% 1A story. Mm-hmm. You know, one will be bunker, one will be space. And then, and then minor check-ins with maybe the other storylines, maybe. But like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm like 90% sure that we won't see any cabbie in like one or three. I think yeah. three is like, I think it's like mostly space. Yeah, I think three sounds like it's mostly about how space crew figures out how to get to the ground. Yeah, and like the, the, them on board the other ship and all that yeah, stuff. So. Yeah, and finding the pod people. And I still suspect that they're going to hear Clark from the ground and that's how they're going to find out that she's yeah, alive. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. So so my my sense is that episode four 
feels to me just this is sort of wild speculation like when the switch flips and the engine starts running on the plot really barreling forward that episode four is probably where that happens yeah the first three are going to be sort of more of this kind of careful setup so what i like about that what i think is really heartening about that as a style is that that says to me that this is another one of those seasons that is again like one clean crisp overarching story Mm -hmm. like there's time to set it up there's time for us to sort of like dive into like as much as we need but no more of the kind of backstory of the past six years and all of these different groups and places to sort of get everything lined up so that this battle has the stakes that we need it to have and all the kind of shifting alliances have the stakes that we need them to have without getting bogged down in it, but also that it's not going to be, you know, they wouldn't be doing, they wouldn't be beginning it like this if it was like, we've got 50 different giant, you know, plot things we got to get through. We got to like keep moving. Like this to me is a sign that the whole season is being really carefully paced and that one big clean trajectory of who gets to live in Eden that all of the other stories sort of branch off of, like that it's that it's back to the kind of plot structure they do that I that I think where the show really sings, like in seasons one and two, where everything's really sharp. Yeah, and like one of the things that was made for me season two so great, and I think you know the best season they've they have done at least you know that we've seen so far, is that they they took a lot of care in setting up Mount Weather so that although they were the you know the kind of like bad guy they're the antagonists they took enough time to let us get to know mount weather and understand what they were doing and why they did it so that as evil as what they were doing was you understood that dante wallace was a person who genuinely was trying to do the right thing and just had a kind of warped perspective for a bunch of reasons. And I think like we're seeing a similar kind of care here. You know, this is a show that so often gets said, like the writers say it, Jason says it, that this is a show that's about perspectives, where everybody has a perspective. And I think, you know, again, one of those things that I think that got short shrift in season three, especially in to some extent in season four, is that like, well, that's still true. Because they were rushing through plots so much, it was it became very easy to not absorb all the perspectives if you didn't want to. We didn't get, you know, like the fact that we didn't get an election episode in season three for Pike meant you could easily as a viewer not give a second thought to what Pike's perspective might be and believe that he doesn't really have one. So they sort of skipped over that really deliberate care. And I think this season we see them sort of returning to here for each, each of these groups, for each of these people here are precisely what the stakes are for the situation. Here's exactly, you know, who they are. And, and how they're going to start reacting to things and how their reactions sort of reflect their point of view. And like, just to touch on the Allegis people, um, cause it's almost my bedtime. Yeah. I think like, again, it's like the thing where we only saw like a few moments, you know, like just a few moments of them. But even in that few moments where they did, we did, you know, we got such a clear idea of what this looks like to them on the ground, both in terms of being reminded that these are prisoners, these are criminals, and all but, you know, three of them are dangerous, violent criminals. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we understand that, like, and, and we, you know, we get a sense of, like, okay, these are these are probably people, you know, whose first reaction to a situation, you know, is going to be violence. But then even with those two guys that Maddie encounters, there's, right. there's variation. And so I, I like that we're going to get, I think, you know, in Dioza, who I'm already love and oh my god i would literally die for charmaine (laughs) dioza no exaggeration i am obsessed 
obsessed with her. Yes. And I think that like, you know, at, at, at the very least, she's going to be another Dante Wallace. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm ready. Uh-huh. I'm ready to love her more than Dante Wallace. But, um, but I think just in terms of sort of like, she's, she's not reactive. You know, she's smart. She's measured. She's thoughtful. She yeah. has goals. You know, she, she sees the people around her clearly. In the sense that she sort of looks at Shaw and and recognizes, you know, she's able to recognize not weakness in the fact that he isn't, you know, aggressive and violent, but like just sort of that he is really smart and that he ha- he's a resource, you know, like like he's her raven, I think. And but at the same time, you know, she like I love that line she says to McCurry, like, don't worry, you're my, still my favorite mass murderer. <laughs> <laughs> My new OTP. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she just like, you know, like, I think she's, she's a fascinating character because she does seem to have this very clear sighted, dispassionate ability to assess things that is very different from Clark. I'm so, I'm so, I cannot wait to watch her and Clark butt heads, especially because Mama Bear Clark, who like so much of her and and, like, and I also loved when she said, when, when Clark said to Maddie in the Rover, I won't let anything happen to you as, you know, cause that's a callback to Bellamy. That's what Bellamy said Mm -hmm. to Octavia, you know, baby Octavia. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, so, so, you know, Clark in a lot of ways is operating in, in, you know, at perhaps her most emotional, you know, she's reacting, reacting to things completely emotionally, you know, versus Dioza, who I like, I, I don't know. I like, it's early days yet, but I sort of look at like Dioza and I think like, I feel like Dioza is what Clark could have been in a different context if Clark, if Clark had f- suppressed her heart more. Because Clark also had that ability to look at people around her and think, what do you have that I don't have that I need? And how do I make that work for me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just like really, really fascinated I'm already sort of interested in thinking about Allegius. Like, we know, you know, Richard has said that, like, McCreary is a kind of, like, there-but-for-the-grace-of-God version of Murphy. And I'm really curious mm. to think about how it might be interesting to think about, like, Dioza as an alternate version of Clark and Shaw maybe as an alternate uh-huh. version of Raven. Mm-hmm. Like, smart, mm-hmm. thrill-seeker. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm like, I didn't, it's, it's all just table-setting. We don't know very much about them yet, but I'm just, like, so hyped for them well and it was yeah it was the perfect little introduction and and the thing that i mean what i what i loved the most about this episode was even though there was a lot that we sort of knew coming in how many different times they sort of surprised me and one of the big surprises to me was i would never have guessed that eligius completely took over shallow valley that quickly like i was like oh this will be this will be a process of like over the course of several episodes and like then eventually they'll kind of, you know, set up shop in Clark's camp and she and Maddie will go on the run. It's like, nope, end of the first episode. <laughs> Clark has no safe home anymore, you know? Yep. Mm-hmm. So that sort of immediate sense of, you know, of of menace was really beautifully done. But yeah, but I, I'm, I mean, I'm more excited about Dio's than I have about any brand new character in a really long oh, time. Oh, yeah. I got just like, what, you know, Ivana's like the quiet power, like just in those few lines like just yep. the just how like she speaks so sort of like calmly and softly, but just like mm-hmm. the way that she's able to convey so much like power and authority and and like intelligence and sort of like chilling strategicness just in those few lines. I'm like I'm mm-hmm. also already just kind of like all right. I'm going to I need to bow down at Ivana's feet because she is oh my God. amazing. 
she's yeah i love her i love her so much i'm just like oh my god you're like my new pike but i'm also gay for you <laughs> it's like the best of both <laughs> the but, only but thing I that also... kept you from like going fully 100 percent like balls to the wall in love with pike <laughs> was the fact that he was a man and that now he was not a milf that yeah. he was not a milf and now you have a milf pike and the and game is over i'm sorry <laughs> Uh, my heart it was over before it started I was never getting my heart back Um, okay okay Uh, I'm going to warn you right now when I edit this podcast I'm going to save a clip of you saying and now I have a MILF and I'm going to make it your your, like ring when you call me (laughs) oh that's going to be fun your husband will really enjoy that (laughs) I'm going to start calling you more (laughs) excellent plan oh you know what never mind never mind I will make that his his ring (laughs) and then you can start calling him and he will just be really confused and I will be very 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 amused oh my god Love it. Love All it, right. love it, love it. All right. Um, so last thing, because I know you have to go. Yes. But I do, speaking of Eligius, just one one last little thing that I'm excited about that was sort of very lightly foreshadowed that I can't wait to unpack is is just the, like, like what the fuck do they think happened? You know, right? Like, yeah. Like, the, like the, the gap between the world that they left and the world that they came back to, like... You know, like we've we've been in this journey the whole entire time. We know all the stories about both Prime Fias. Uh-huh. And they know nothing. Uh-huh. And they're our people. They're from like our time. Uh-huh. And so so I am completely fascinated by in in what way and through what mechanism do they kind of put the pieces together? Who tells them? What do they learn? What do they know? And what do we learn from them about what their version of the world was like, the world that they left? Um, like all, like there's just the, the potential for juicy, amazing world building in our picture of the earth that the Elegious mining prisoners left behind them. I'm just like obsessed with that. And, like, so and what do they know about Becca and Bill Cadigan that about we don't? Becca and Bill Cadigan! That they might yes. be able to fill in because we know that Elegious Mining Corp was connected to Bill Cadigan and mm-hmm. they are Nightbloods because that's why Becca made Nightblood was for them originally yeah so we know like it's all like everything's all linked together yes and i'm hopeful that that in some way the backstory of how of how this ship got into space how this all kind of came to be opens up a door into that sort of slice of history that we haven't gotten yet and also you know i i think it begs the question and i don't know if maybe this is tied into where this season is going or not but are there more ships out there? Uh-huh. You know, like, was Eligius the only corporation that bought Becca's Nightblood to send people out into space on long missions? Mm-hmm. Is part of the sort of mythologizing of human, you know, of humanity that these characters have been doing, the myth that the Ark told themselves that they were all that was left of yeah, humanity. Yeah, yeah. Which we... Which we knew from season one wasn't true because they didn't know about the grounders, but but it could also turn out to be e- even more not true as more and more potentially chickens come home to roost. So that's something else I'm sort of thinking about a lot too. Is like, are we going to find other spaceships? What like what do they know that we don't know because their slice of the world is you know an entire century removed from the story that we've been watching? And how do the things that these two two groups like learn about each other? 
inform what we know of all the world building? Like, do mm-hmm. they know the bunkers there because they knew about Cadigan? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm into all that shit. Yes, me too. Ah, oh, so excited. Uh, so excited. Our show is back. It's back. Huh. Uh, all right. So next week we will be back uh, for the Red Queen, which I am so excited for and so scared. <laughs> I like. I am not prepared for the horrors that I await know. us in that bunker. But I am dying to know what's going on with Abby because I. Oh my god! Whatever. Oh my god! The big, the big Abby mystery that like no one has been able to figure out. Yeah, which is making me absolutely. I'm just, I've like racked my brains and I just I have no idea. Um. And I, no, I know, I know, and I, which I love. Yes. I love how much I don't know. I know, me too. Like, I sometimes I sort of, like, I try to start figuring it out, and then I'm like, nope, nope. First of all, you won't. Yep. Second of all, like, it's mm-hmm. more fun to be surprised. And I think that our friend CR, formerly of Black Girl Nerds, until that um, went uh, up in flames recently. Very sad. Very sad. But anyway, she's awesome, and she she got screeners. Um, she got the first four episodes Um because she was the recapper of uh, for the hundred for Black Girl Nerds. So first things first, if we have anybody, if we have any listeners who are looking for the hundred coverage, she's awesome, and uh, you should hire her. Um, and second of all, I believe she's going to join us next week for a discussion of the Red Queen because she, like, since she got those screeners, she's just like. She loves, she's just, she's so excited about this episode. Like, oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> we talked about, you awesome. know, she's like, yeah, no, she, this was like her favorite of the four, and she's just like dying oh, to cool. scream about it. And I was, and she's a big fan of the podcast. And so I was like, why don't yeah, we've she? Yeah, we've been wanting to get her on for a while. Yeah. So, so awesome. I was like, all right, why don't you come yell about it with us? So I think she's going to be joining us. Excellent. Well, tell her to brace for lots of cabbie screaming. I'm sure, I mean, she listens to the <laughs> podcast. I think she knows what she's in for. <laughs> Well, it's good to right. be back. And we missed you guys. We missed you guys. We missed the show. It was a long, long, dark 11 months, but <laughs> we found the green spot. We found our Eden and our beautiful village, <laughs> and we're ready to live. Yay! <laughs> Yay! All right. Bye. All right. See you next week, everybody. Bye.